Hey, Blenders, on this week's show, Scarlett Johansson's lawsuit against Disney, The Suicide Squad, is opening up, and our guest is Beckett director Ferdy Filomarino. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, Blenders, and welcome. Welcome to episode number 176 of Real Blend, a podcast that's proudly sponsored week after week <laughs> by John Cena's Tidy Whitey's. That's right, <laughs> folks. Tidy Whitey's, starring in The Suicide Squad. I haven't uh, laughed that hard in a long time. When when he and we'll get into it in the review. It's not really a spoiler, but there's a Tidy Whitey scene in Suicide Squad, which is genuinely one of the funniest things I've ever seen. And it, and they just keep it going and going yes. and going for a long time, like I do when Gabe tells me to wrap up every time yeah. on this week's show. Something more serious than that, uh, Scarlett Johansson is suing the Walt Disney Company, and we'll get to the fallouts of that. We're going to review The Suicide Squad, because it's going to be in theaters and also on HBO Max. And our guest this week is someone special. We have Ferdy Filamarino, who directed a film for Netflix called Beckett, starring one of our favorite friends of the show, John David Washington. So we're going to get to that interview in a minute. And by we, I mean Kevin McCarthy. Of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. Hi, Kev. Hello, Jonathan. Hello, Jacob. Uh, and uh, I know we're missing Gabe today, so I want to give Jeff McCobb a shout out, who is our Jeff. producer today. Jeff is awesome. And Jeff and I, uh, I've known Jeff for, uh, for a few years, but Jeff and I had a cool experience once when we got to do a Ryan Johnson interview together uh, in L.A. It was actually for Real Blend, and Jeff uh, ran audio on that. So shout out to Jeff. If you haven't heard our Ryan right. Johnson interview for Knives Out, go back. That is immaculately immaculately produced by Jeff McCobb. There you go. Uh, and uh, Jeff uh, Jeff McCobb, it's pronounced by Ryan Reynolds as Jeff McCobb. So <laughs> it's an inside joke for uh, for all the Cinema Blend staff people who are listening. Uh, the other voice that you always hear is Jake Hamilton of Fox Thirty Two in Chicago. Hi, Jake. How are you? I love that we are what one hundred eighty episodes in, and not <laughs> once have ever described Gabe's work as immaculate. And no. Jeff Jeff has produced for about ninety seconds. And he's already getting immaculately produced. I Listen, actually disagree with step that. Up your game. I, I have praised Gabe's uh, producing a lot, especially at the Tarantino event, uh, as I sat there in the crowd and watched him work his magic. So Gabe, Gabe knows that I, I love him. So it's all good. Do you know, I feel like that show kind of ran itself, though. <laughs> uh, I mean, honestly. <laughs> I mean, how long we, are we going to milk that? My God, it was a month ago. Let's move on. kind of showed Jeez. up, and, and that show just kind of rolled along. I don't so, know you, but I, I, have to take my, I have to take my uh, coat to the dry cleaners because the tails are all dirty from someone riding on them. <laughs> yeah. And it couldn't be further from the truth. Gabe got there, like, so early, and oh he was God. there all day for, like, building that He's still there cleaning. <laughs> he is. That's why, <laughs> That's, why right. That's why he's not here. That's why he's not here. All right. If you're watching us on YouTube, hello. Uh, thank you very much for joining us and seeing our smiling faces. Please head down to the you description. See that I need a haircut. While you're heading down to the description, um, hit like and subscribe, as the kids like to say. Uh, in that description, it shows you where you can sign up for the Real Blend Premium, uh, which gives you. Let's go over all the things that the premium episodes give you of uh, a Monday episode. Uh, which is bonus time with all of us, a newsletter that comes twice a week, and of course, an ad-free experience 
with your real blend uh audio listening what, what i didn't My, expect was the uh the weekly nudes of sean like i didn't <laughs> i didn't realize that that was a part of the, those were just the, for you oh, those were for me just they were very they were tastefully done Wait, <laughs> they, must have been, they must have they must have been done by jeff because they were immaculately produced they were immaculate yes they're black and white uh so go <laughs> to cinemablend.com backslash real blend premium to find out more about that okay uh we're having a watch party i want to remind everybody i'm so oh, excited you know, for someone, this Someone asked when we're going to do another feature-length commentary track, which I think we need to find the time to do. Isn't that kind of what we're doing, but just via Twitter? Yes, but the idea of the commentary track is that people can listen to it anytime that they want to, I guess, if we have it recorded. And I was reminded that we promised the folks Inception um, after we did It's just going to be two and a half hours of us going, I like Inception, um, so I'd be I'd be looking forward to potentially doing you that. See, but anyway, you the say watch that party. like, oh, that's one of the Nolan movies I like. Well, it is. It is. Why can't we just do Interstellar? It's his best movie. No, it's, God, no. It is his best. See, I, I actually think I would actually argue that Interstellar would be a more interesting commentary because of our differences in in that possibly. film. We all no, are probably, I, I, we're all I on the same page about Inception. Interstellar. I love Interstellar. Yeah. It's but, true, we all are on the same page, but, but I need to point out to you in your Matt Damon uh, interview that even Damon doesn't believe <laughs> that it's his best movie. <laughs> Damon, because his reaction was a very polite, like, well, that's a choice. He, here's why he reacts that way. So what, what Sean's referring to is an interview we did with Damon for Stillwater, and uh, I showed him my, my Interstellar Stay tattoo. And he was like, that's quite a statement when I told him that Interstellar was the best movie of Nolan's film, N- Nolan's career. And I think that just speaks to the idea that Interstellar is kind of underrated in his in his filmography. It's, it's a film that was, I, I think, very divisive. And I think a lot of people were didn't love it as much as 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 I did or some people did. But it it just it didn't resonate, I thought, as much as it as much as like the Dark Knight or Inception did with a lot of the overall. I mean, do you guys think of that as a Matt Damon movie? Like I I kind of like I kind of forget it. In fact, it's actually always a fun surprise every time. Not not in that moment, but when I get within about 15 minutes of that moment, I'm always like, oh, yeah, this is the part where Matt Damon shows up. I'm kind of always re-surprised but see, every because time. Of, because of The Martian, I just assume that like him in space is the Martian. I, I, have I, to I go, never think of Interstellar. I have to go back and watch. my. There's a, uh, When I interviewed Damon for The Martian, I said, it's funny to me that you're in this and you were in Interstellar and like and, and just the idea of the, the characters being in space in some way. Um, and like he gave me this really interesting answer because I asked like if those two characters were somehow meet in space somewhere, like what they oh, would do. Funny. And, 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 and I, you know, I think it's, it's funny because like I, every time I interview Matt Damon, I either bring up Interstellar or Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. Those, mm. are, the, those are the two movies that I'm constantly bringing up to him. But yes, and to Sean's point, uh, Damon's reaction would lead you to believe that even he's surprised that someone would say it's Nolan's best movie. But I, he did I think seem genuinely he did seem genuinely touched that one of his movies was on your body in tattoo form. But we, we listen, we're way off course. I was trying to say that we're having a watch party. <laughs> you guys remember that's where this conversation started. Well, it's uh, Interstellar. Yeah. On we are August not going to wrap this show up in time. <laughs> we are. We have to. Someone has a hard out. Uh, on August 30th at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, we are going to be live tweeting along with uh, Steven Spielberg's Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, and we're going to be using hashtag CinemaBlend Movie Club. So currently, if you follow 
Cinema Blend on social media and some of our editors, uh, you might be you might notice that they were doing the Twilight uh, series, all of the Twilight films in order, <laughs> and they are up to Breaking Dawn. I think they just did Breaking Dawn. Do those Dawn do part like two. really? I, think they like, I don't mean this sarcastically, but just because like that's an older series that I feel like people don't really talk about anymore. Did those do well for you guys? The Twilight they did. watch, really? Yeah. yeah. Well, someone mean, told me, did, did I read that like they're the number one movies on Netflix right now? I wouldn't be surprised at that. I, someone Dude, someone sure. told me that, that they're on Netflix and they're like in the top. They're all in the top. You know, that's the only series that I've done every junket for from start to finish. I believe that. I think mine mm. is Hunger Games. Hunger Games I, think, I didn't do. I, I, I came to Harry four. Potter near like near the end. I did like five, six, seven, one, seven, two. Interesting. Here's why Twilight's I've done all the so, James Bond ones. All of them. All, all, every single one of them. <laughs> every single one. They yeah, know, every, quick, quick, no. Speaking of, like, I know this is, we're, we're really diverging here. Um, just because I saw a picture divergent? of him the other day. Did you say divergent? divergent? Did, you, um, did you ever get Gene Hackman? No, I never I did. I saw a that picture of him on Twitter the other day, and I think it said that he's, like, retired living in New Mexico, and he's, like, 90 or 91. so old. He's painting. He just goes out there and paints. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I just, I, I uh, don't know many people who have spoken to him, and I figured you might have. Do you know his final uh, film credit? Welcome to Mooseport. Yes, that's unfortunate. I <laughs> okay, really but I don't hate that movie. More. That's a really, like, it's, it's a clever idea. But it shouldn't be Gene Hackman's sure, final I, film I, credit. I, I agree with you. Sean, but one of these one of these days in the show, do you mind telling us the story of doing the Citizen Kane junket? Because I really I want to hear all about Orson Welles and like just how that was to, uh-huh. to be at that. They yeah, shot it on film, right? He's like, you know, this you know this movie needs more. Uh, I, I want to hear more about the gubernatorial race that inspired this. That's yeah. that's what I want. <laughs> all right, let's get to the weekly poll. Um, show's Jake, weird. yes, we asked the people uh, yes, heading yes. into the weekend last last Friday, which. Ridley Scott movie, are you uh, more excited to see? Speaking of The Martian and getting yeah. around to Ridley Scott's filmography. Uh, at 81 years old, I think Three. Ridley is. 83. 83? Yeah. He has two films coming out in the same year. Now, I'm going to guess one of those is, was one of those shot before and delayed? Or did he really work I on think, these? Hmm. Well, I know, I know COVID disrupted The Last Duel. I know they had okay. to shut down production on that. Now, whether or not... Maybe House of... I have a feeling House of Gucci he shot after because that seems like the kind of film that you could shoot and get ready I'm looking faster than The Last Duel. Gucci right? just 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 shot. Like they, uh, yeah, I okay, that it. makes sense. Let, that me, makes let sense. me check on the... the, the because um, like, the I timing. feel like The Last Duel is something that would need more like post-time. I know right, so, he works fast, but that's crazy. All right, Last Duel uh, shot. Filming began February 14th of 2020. Uh, and okay. then they did some, they concluded filming October 14th, 2020. I'm almost certain that House of Gucci shot this year. Um, actually, okay. like pretty recently, I think. Let me look. Uh, House of Gucci shot from, started in August. Oh, no, wait a second. They wrapped, okay, on, on February 2021 in Variety, they, they, they said pre-production had started. Filming wrapped on May 8th, 2021. Wow. All right. That's super impressive. Yeah. Um, so we asked you guys which one you're most looking forward to uh, between Last Duel and House of Gucci. Before you answer, uh, Jake, tell me what you think the people said and then tell me which one you're most excited for. Based on what I saw, like, you know, the the Twitter talk, which I know we have made a point to say that Twitter is by no means, uh, you know, an inclusive representation of everyone out there in the world. But it seems like House of Gucci kind of lit the fire. I think it's a little more accessible, a little bit more soap opera-y. And I think uh, bringing in Lady Gaga and uh, an Adam Driver and then an unrecognizable Jared Leto. And then it also very much reminds me of like an American crime story saga 
which are yes. very popular. Those series on FX, they they did the Versace one a few years ago, which was which was top notch. Um, so with, with that being said, I would say probably um, I think House of Gucci uh, it probably takes the edge, but it's probably close. <laughs> yeah, you're correct. And it is very close. Uh, 52.5%. Oh, shit. I swear House to God, I didn't Gucci. look at it. I swear to God. And 47.5% for The Last Duel. Um, so, yeah, that's pretty good. And uh, so if I had to choose between the two of them, I'm I'm also going House of Gucci. I, just I think, think I would, too, and I don't know why. But look, it's like Last Duel is very much like, because I know, Sean, you're not a big Gladiator guy. Last mm. Duel kind of falls under Ridley Scott's Gladiator umbrella, which is very much my jam. But there's something about House of Gucci that if I had to choose between the two, I'd probably choose oh. that one. I'll tell you why I'm excited about Last Duel, and Kevin, you'll back me up this because Kevin and I just saw Free Guy. Uh, Jody Comer is Comer. fantastic. Jody Comer, in Free Guy. Comer, yeah, I call her Comer, um, <laughs> and uh, I can't wait to see her in the Last Duel. I, I think she's going to be fantastic. <laughs> so Sean, <laughs> so Sean, I'll tell you, I truly believe Sorry, this. Jake. Sometimes we are weirdly connected uh, okay. in, a, in a strange way. Like, like sometimes. Aww. Like, I feel like there's a lot of coincidences that happen that you and I talk about sometimes or like, and I know you firmly believe in like things happening like that and things are meant to happen for a reason. Right before you said the Jodie Comer line about Last Duel, that was going to be my next statement as to why Last Duel became more interesting to me after seeing Free Guy. That was literally yep. my next thought. And then you literally said the same thing. But I, I would go Gucci, but but after seeing Jodie Comer in Free Guy, I'm like kind of all in. I need to watch Killing Eve now. Apparently, um, Lauren loves that show. I know people people rave about it. Her and Sandra Oh, um, but I would I would agree with you. Duel kind of comes across as like a, a, again. I'm not trying to simplify Sir Ridley Scott's filmmaking. He's 83 years old and made two films this year, so uh, you know doesn't nearly need my my commentary, but. It does have a gladiator feel. And I think the Gucci one kind of puts it in a realm where I'm interested to see what Sir Ridley Scott does with the material. Because um, I think I know he's going to knock Duel out the park. Mm -hmm. Good screenplay. I also like mm -hmm. the idea that, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, that Duel, the, all the male, the male character perspectives are written by um, Damon and Affleck. And then the female characters, from what I understand, are written by N Nicole Holofsner. I oh, is that I, true? I think that's the way it worked. Or, or oh, it, that's interesting. I don't know if it's as simple as that or more of like Nicole wrote the female aspect of the story. I don't know if she like specifically wrote Jody's story specifically. I know it's based on mm -hmm. a true story. Um, but there is an element there where I believe Damon and Affleck wrote the male perspective and then Nicole kind of worked on the female perspective, which I think is a really interesting way to handle the screenplay. Um, and I'm very fascinated to see kind of how that duality is. And if I am wrong on that, please correct me. But that's kind of what I read. And I think that's the case. So have you guys ever seen the director's cut version of uh, Kingdom of Heaven? Kingdom of Heaven. Uh, yeah, it's a great oh. movie. That's a great oh, film. My God. I, I, is there a director? And, and you can't say Snyder. Is there okay. a director whose work has been as improved and evolved and changed by director's cuts as Ridley Scott? I oh, mean, Blade, no. Blade Runner is the, is the quintessential yeah. director's cut yeah. story, right? I mean, but also, like anyone the, that's never seen the, the, the director's cut, and granted, Kingdom of Heaven is not as good of a film as Blade Runner, but if you've never yeah. seen the director's cut version of Kingdom of Heaven, you are missing, I would argue, a masterpiece. What I always find interesting is when you look back on history, I know we got to move on, but it is interesting to think about 
somebody at the time at the studio thought the voiceover was a good idea for Harrison Ford's character. Like they, they, someone actually thought, Hey, this is actually a good idea. And I, and I, I just can't wrap my mind around that to be honest with you. And, and, and it's must been, it must've been so frustrating for Ridley yeah. Scott, right. To have studio the movie executives like don't make great decisions. I, I guarantee it was from some sort of test audience that I think it was from test audiences yeah. because people, people had a hard Runner. time following it. It was, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting thing. So, I don't know if people, I don't know if you guys saw this quote from uh, Jason Momoa today, where he's already talking about that there's a four to six hour cut of Dune. That Denis oh, has a four to six uh, hour cut. A four wait, to six uh, hour just, cut just of, Dune of the first one? chapter. Yes, oh, of the God. first chapter. And he's already said, um, I would prefer to watch it in, in, I don't know if you, neither of you guys are going to agree with this. He would prefer to watch it um, in segments if you yeah, could like, get like the, an full, HBO, the full six which hour was kind of series always, of it. Oftentimes, I, I often think, like, oh, this, you know, whenever the, they just released a really horrible version of the stand on on whatever the cbs app was and like just i just kind of wish hbo would just kind of snatch that up and do like like why why isn't hbo snatching up dark tower and doing a dark, a dark tower, tower series dark tower like that's it, that's like to... instead of i don't want 84 different game of thrones spinoffs give me dark tower yeah i guess if amazon succeeds with that lord of the rings thing then potentially um more people might invest in longer form storytelling. Did, did, did I but. see this sixty million dollars an episode for that Lord of the Rings series? Sixty million. Was it yeah, four fifty three for the whole season? It's like half a billion yeah. for the whole season, yeah. which breaks down to like sixty million an episode. That is it's insane. We're basically I mean, getting like like movies. We're getting movies every new Lord of the Rings movies every week, and I can't wait to talk about it with Sean. <laughs> what I will tell you is this though: when that picture dropped yesterday, oh my god! In the Beautiful. first three minutes. That tweet was viral. Like, in, like there, the fan base for Lord of the Rings is so immersed in that environment that it, I, I think it's going to get crazy viewership. And I think, and listen, it's it's at the end of the day, it's four hundred fifty million dollars. What do they spend for Knives Out on Netflix? Close to that, right? It was something along those lines. Money. Yeah, a lot um, of money. I, I think Amazon needs something to pull people in and like tomorrow war didn't do that without remorse. Didn't do that. Um, I mean, I, I, Fleabag is Amazon, I believe yeah, coming um, to America did pretty well for him. It did. Yeah, that did very well. And then that was obviously a great, a great call on their part, but that was originally produced by Paramount. Right. And then yeah, they just Amazon. Yeah. and so I just wonder, I wonder, I think, I, I think at the end of the day, while we, while, when we saw that number, we were like, what the hell? But if you think about it, each Lord of the Rings film, what costs yeah. like over 200 million to make. So they spent, I don't know how much they made spent on all three to make them. Um, but it was a lot and 450 million is a lot of money. But in the grand scheme of like bringing people into Amazon prime, it could be a smart move. And last thing I'll say on Dune, and I've said it before in the show, but I still don't understand how the hell they didn't shoot both parts back to back. I'm just it actually depresses me because if you think about it, if that movie doesn't perform. If it pulls a Blade Runner and it does good, but not great and doesn't really profit. Like, I, I can't believe Denis wouldn't at least. Uh, I, I don't know that I'm trying to wrap my mind around that conversation, to be honest with you. You know what? I think if Warner Brothers is concerned about potentially losing Nolan to Netflix or wherever, I think they're in a position where um, they want to make sure because because Warner Brothers is a is a director's destination. I think they want to make sure that they keep Denis around, even if maybe his movies mm. don't make the money. So I think honestly, I think no matter what Dune does, they let him make Dune Part Two. All right, let's move on to our interview for this week. Uh, it's not 
Warner Brothers and it's not Amazon, but it's Netflix, a film called Beckett uh, starring John David Washington and Alicia Vikander. And it's um, available to stream coming up next week. I believe it drops on the 13th. And so we had a conversation with the director of that film, uh, Ferdy Filamarino. And so without further ado, let's toss it right to our conversation with this up and coming, exciting director. Nice to meet you guys. Nice, nice to meet, to meet you, you also. too, Ferdy. We, we appreciate you taking the time. So I have to start here. Um, you have a breathtaking scene uh, that, to leave some of the details out of it, involves John David Washington on the side of a cliff. Uh, and the way that it's shot gave me actual vertigo. Uh, palms started sweating. I felt very uncomfortable because the edge of the cliff stays um, in focus, but somehow the bottom of the chasm that he's over is in focus also. I wanted you to talk about the angles that you chose to get that, and uh, maybe some of the lenses that you used to replicate um, that effect, because it was really breathtaking. Well, uh, look, to me, the locations in the film were basically part of the story. You know, um, we, I, I literally, traveled through Greece looking for places to shoot in, both based on some requirements that I had for the story, but also allowing the locations themselves that I was seeing to inform and eventually change the story, or let's say, you know, the action part of the story accordingly. Mm -hmm. And when I saw that place, of course, that was like, okay, this, you know, I was looking for a place uh, where there would be some sort of jump and when I visited that place, I would be, okay, well, this, I mean, if there's going to be a jump, this is the place to do a <laughs> jump. In all of Greece, it's going to be here. So, uh, you know, I went there, we went tech scouting and, uh, and of course, all of the, the grips are like, <laughs> like this, because <laughs> merely to arrive at the edge already, there's a bit of a, uh, not dangerous, but it's a little hike in the rocks and everything. And then um you know eventually we figured things out i forget exactly what lens we shot that uh moment with but you know in this movie as you may have noticed we tend we tend to stay pretty wide mm -hmm. you know uh, uh we used a lot of what the, the um, uh, script supervisor like to call the naughty 40 <laughs> uh, a lot of 35 a lot of 24s 18s even uh I, I definitely uh would not say that in that moment there's anything uh tighter than a 40 maybe okay. a 50 but probably not now i have to know uh, john what was john david's reaction when you showed him the edge of the cliff well that's the thing that's the thing he the the, the amazing thing about john david is that he completely embraced every he embraced both aspects of this character which have to do on the one hand, with a dramatic sort of moment in a human's life who's going through a personal crisis mm -hmm. uh, for reasons that have to do with the way he exists in the world and with something that happens in the beginning of the film. Mm -hmm. And the other part, the other aspect of it is all of this sort of thriller stuff happens to him and there's a whole physical aspect to the performance. And he is a king of both. Mm -hmm and love the idea of merging it together and love the idea of doing all of his stunts and participating in, participating in everything. Now, of course, the very moment when you see the character jumping and, you know, and, and everything that happens, 
that's that, technically, you know, we could not use John David, <laughs> but but he did literally, as you see, and it's there was there could be no trickery involved. He does walk to the edge of the cliff and climb around that rock mm-hmm. over the canyon. He did do that uh, stuff. Uh, I'm trying to remember if he did it twice or not, but anyway, he did it. He was he was it was scary for anyone. It was scary. And uh, his 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 uh, mother uh, was going to visit us, and uh, he was happy that for some reason it was either going to happen before or after. He was very happy that that wasn't the day she was visiting. <laughs> she would have been slightly upset. But um, but you know, again, the idea was to experience through this character. So you know, this movement. I remember watching a movie called Time and Tide, Time and Tide, Time mm-hmm. and Tide by Tsui Hark. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there is a moment in that I think stayed in me so much and subconsciously came out in this, in this uh, scene. It's a moment when a character from inside of a building jumps, he grabs onto something uh, like a rope and literally jumps out a window and the camera follows him goes outside the window with him and then stares down as he falls hanging on this rope. Wow. And I remember when I saw that, I was a teenager and I was like, whoa, this this is the coolest Mm -hmm. scene ever. Maybe that somewhat stayed with me. This is not what happens in this movie, but that feeling stayed with me. Mm, That's amazing. Well, Ferdy, I'm I'm really fascinated with your career because I know you were second unit director on Call Me By Your Name and Suspiria. and, and, And I think it's a really interesting thing to think about in terms of like, what that gave you and now the director that you are now and directing Beckett specifically. And one of the things I find interesting is for our audience specifically, can you walk us through the journey of like the second unit on those movies specifically working with Luca and kind of what that gave you as a storyteller that you can now utilize in your own film and directing your own film? Well, to tell you the truth, it's a more, it's a longer uh, story with more separate chapters in it and doing second unit on Lucas movies is only uh, I would say a smaller chapter in it sure uh, I, you know I, I I was an assistant director on I am love um, and uh, you know uh, at the end of that film and you know and, and an understanding was in, immediate and uh, and uh, long lasting uh, and I, I wrote a short film after that movie uh i hadn't i'd only done very little silly things at the time just videos things for internet nothing serious Uh, Mm. but i wrote this idea i showed it to him and he liked it and he he shared it with uh, marco moravito his producing partner and he liked it and they're like all right well we'll produce it let's make this and so you know we developed it and we, we made it into my first short film uh and you know from there the collaboration started and it took in several forms. That was my first short film. Then I worked as an editor on a couple of Lucas projects on a documentary and on other short films. Uh, then we made my first feature, Antonia, uh, same team, same producing team. Um, and, then, uh, and then when Luca was making a bigger splash, Call Me By Your Name in Suspiria, I, act, I did do second unit, but in, mm. in each of these movies, the experience was completely different. Um, because the movies were completely different and I guess what he needed from the second unit, which in any event is quite unconventional, is not what second unit usually is. It's not just 
sort of landscape shots, etc. Sometimes, like in Suspiria, there were these amazing uh, nightmare sequences. Uh, and you know, that was that was second unit. That stuff we did. Luca had, you know, ideas and rep specific references on what they needed to contain. And then, you know, like he said, go wild. And uh, uh, so that was like a, <laughs> superior, a lot of it. Then we did other things too. Call Me By Your Name, frankly, was uh, very, very small. That was a more traditional sort of couple of days at the end of the shoot, second unit um, mm -hmm. experience. Uh, but, you know, one thing that's always fascinating in seeing the way that Luca builds his movies as a producer filmmaker is uh, they are different, they range in different scopes, and it's not necessarily a, an always increasing scope. It simply depends on the story and the way that he builds a team around himself and he, 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 he makes what the story needs happen one way or the other. Uh, and this, you know, it, it can be, and it, you know, to me as a filmmaker, it was very inspiring throughout the years to see, mm. to witness, and to experience, because of course, he and, and his producing partner produced my work, and so I got to have this privilege of, of having producers who simply believed in empowering the vision of the director mm. by all means necessary, in the scope of independent cinema, that is, of course. Mm. So, you know, I, I was, I was a lucky enough to experience many different things and many different types of uh, stories, I would say. Ferdy, hmm. uh, just one more thing uh, real fast, only because we're, we mentioned Call Me By Your Name. Um, the, the last shot of that film is still one of the most incredible things I've ever seen, that one or that as we stay on Chalamet. Uh, and I remember uh, meeting him at an award show one time and he told me that Luca made him shoot that scene three times with three different levels of emotion and he had an earpiece in so he could actually hear the music. I was just curious, I know you were on second unit on that film, but what was your perspective on that shot specifically? Were you there that day? Um, what your I perspective on... Okay, uh, okay. I was, I was just curious. <laughs> yeah. uh, I heard that story too. <laughs> but I wasn't on, I wasn't on set. Cool. I was just curious. I just love that shot so much. I know you were second units. I wasn't sure if you were there that day, but I was just wondering. Cool. Ferdy, I'd, love go ahead. Know, I'd love to know the thought process behind, and, and I, again, I won't give away details in case people are going into this movie as cold as possible, um, but the thought process behind casting someone who's incredibly famous um, in a role that is going to be pivotal, but, but brief. Hmm. Well, uh, there is... There is something that is uh, like a projection of something that's idyllic about the beginning of the film. Mm. Uh, when you see these two, this couple, they, they're just enjoying their vacation and you see their differences and you, it kind of begins like a relationship drama. And I like the idea of what inevitably is an emotional investment in an actor that you know, mm -hmm. in this case, mm -hmm. Alicander, mm -hmm. because... Uh, I think as Hitchcock said at one point, when, when you work, when as a spectator, you go to movies with movie stars, they are like family. Mm -hmm. So if they're in danger, you feel for them because they're, you know, you know them from other movies, from other experiences, you've already shared things with them. And that definitely, technically speaking, allows for an immediacy and only a few scenes, uh, it, it's easier to connect uh, with, with that character. That said, but completely putting aside 
the, the star power of Alicia Vikander, she has a quality and energy to fill the screen and to be, you know, actually quite immediate in the way she communicates and spot on with like fire with just one minimal movement of her face that that technique alone uh, uh, delivered all this energy that we needed at the start of the film and that um, relationships uh, complicity that we needed together at the beginning of the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would even argue that when you have someone who's that great at the beginning of a film, that you could still feel the presence of a character throughout the entire film because of what that character does in the first you know, times that we see them. I think that's a really powerful tool because the character then does kind of live throughout the film as well. Um, one thing I found interesting is that I wanted to ask you is I, I think the 185 ratio is, is amazing. Obviously it works really well at home. Um, and I know you didn't originally make this film with Netflix, but now that it's coming to Netflix, having that 185 is like great for the screen at home. And you shot 35 millimeter as well, which I really appreciate because it just, it just, it just more immersive in my opinion, it's more cinematic. Um, can you speak on the choice to shoot 35? And and I, I know, th- I mean, to me, 35 is the only really way you should go in terms of filmmaking, unless you're Nolan and you're shooting 65 mil IMAX or 65 mil as well. But talk about what 35 gives you as a storyteller and kind of that 185 ratio and kind of how that became almost a happy thing where it works really well at home for the for the Netflix audience. Look, I, I, uh, I, I, the, I'm very, very specific and, uh, um, obsessive about framing and for mm. some reason and I always ask myself the question what is the best format and what is the best ratio to shoot in and then I, I, I shot my my short film and uh, my first short film Diarchy my first feature Antonia and Beckett all on 35 185 aspect ratio oh cool, I, cool. I, each and every time we, we try different things and I always landed there for some reason I just I guess it works for me uh that said, the reasons that could be, um, of course, there is something literally about the, t- the texture of cinema that sure. to me, because of the movies I grew up with, uh, I guess I'm of an age where I still grew up with films entirely shot on film. So there is just something, uh, I guess, Proustian about mm. seeing that texture and the way that the light reacts and the the softness and just things that are different from digital which you know i am not against digital i just sure you know we tested uh we tested we didn't test on this film i have to admit but we tested on my first feature we did test uh which was a period piece we tested the alexa and other cameras and it just you know all of us uh, Sayumbu, my uh, Mokdi Pram, my DP, and the producers, we all sat in the screening room and looked at the test and everyone stayed silent. And then they turned the projector off and we all looked at each other like, film, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, <so. laughs> I mean, exactly. I mean, there, there's, yeah, there's no comparison. So there is also something that's just, I guess, gut, emotional. Uh, it just feels right which I and my collaborators share. Definitely Sayumbu and I share very, very strongly. Um, Also, I have to say probably, this is probably technically not even true anymore, but the natural light on green leaves, there was always something a bit fishy for me in in digital. Mm -hmm. Again, that's surpassed at this point, but I just, I, I trust film. 
it, in some odd way, of course, film is much more unreliable, technically speaking. But in some way, I trust it. I also like that uh, that delay between shooting and you know getting the the dailies. The dailies, uh, yeah. Completely focused on what's going on in front of the camera. Hmm. Oh, I never sorry. even heard that. That's a great perspective. Sorry. And now, and your DP on this shot, uh, shot uh, "Call Me by Your Name" is superior as well. Like, you, like incredible DP. Yeah. Yeah, he's amazing. Look, I uh, when it came to deciding who uh, could shoot my first feature. Uh, you know, my producers asked me, who do you want? And I was like, look, in independent cinema, my favorite DP in the world is, is this Thai guy who shoots the films of Abhijit Pong versus Atakul. And uh, I'm like, okay, let's get in touch. So we got, we got in touch with him and I went to Thailand to meet him. And oh. he loved the idea of the movie, of that first movie. And he loved the idea of coming to Italy to shoot a movie. That, and then he came and it was the first film he shot outside Thailand. Uh, and that, you know, that went great. We, we became friends and his light in that movie is fantastic. Uh, and so then Luca had to do Call Me By Your Name and he called him for that. Uh, <laughs> and, then, and then the rest happened, you know? It's cool. Uh, so, so yeah, at this point, it's just like, it's family. Uh, and and the, the interesting thing is our taste is so aligned that we just, you know, I share references. We discuss what we need to do in general, but then it's it's like, like that, sure, like that. Da, 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 da. Oh, what yeah. about we add that light in the back? Okay, sounds good. You know, it's very mm. seamless. Mm. Cool. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned your framing. Um, I just want to I want to mention one quick scene when uh, John David finally gets to a train that he's trying to access, uh, and you hold the camera uh, on him, and then a character goes past the window, it made me jump. I was like, oh god. <laughs> 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 so I just mentioned that really fast. But you you mentioned um, a filmmaker who I thought of often uh, while watching your film uh, and that's Hitchcock and I, I have to believe that he's been an influence uh, over you as a storyteller because anytime I see you know a, a character who's seen something they're not supposed to you know and then all of a sudden they're off on an adventure that they never once planned uh, I, I just picture Jimmy Stewart Cary Grant uh, and sure. now I'm gonna Look, I'm gonna picture John David I think Hitchcock is it's like Freud to therapy. <laughs> He's simply, he, you know, no matter, even if movies have changed and the art, the art form has changed and uh, moved on and done, doing different things today, he's, I, I feel like he's just part of our subconscious uh, and definitely mine. Uh, uh, this idea of uh, the wrong man. Mm -hmm concept is definitely something that he uh, perfected in something extremely cinematic because you could so much identify with a person who's in a situation he's not supposed to be in. And that's there's something very immediate and very involving and adventurous about it, which of course is part of why we go to the movies. Uh, what I liked about, uh, you know, trying to get, get into this genre was let's, let's take that from Hitchcock, uh, although not specifically Hitchcock, but definitely I didn't want Beckett to be a wrong man per se, which in fact he isn't really once you get to discover the story. Mm -hmm. uh, it, I'm thinking of that scene that you referred to in the train too, mm -hmm. right? When he, when he tries to say, hey, but it's, it's, uh, it's yeah. not me you're looking for. And you're like, actually, it is you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so, so uh, yeah, the, you know, I'm thinking 
the man who knew too much, for example. Mm-hmm. That I have to say, even though the stories are different, there is something about these regular people having to cope with something so violent and extraordinary mm-hmm. that definitely inspired me. There's an element yeah. of it too in, in Hitchcock's films and in Beckett um, that each of the obstacles that he encounters, they're very um, accurate. They're very real. They're no, nothing's exaggerated to the point where it takes you out of the story where you're like, well, he okay, he wouldn't be able to do this necessarily. You know. Well, I disagree. I think oh. in I think in Hitchcock, maybe not not so much in The Man Who Knew Too Much, but in, in the more famous movies, definitely North by Northwest. It's heightened. Mm. I mean, that plot makes absolutely no sense in the real world. <laughs> it's almost like, it's kind of like a dream, if you think about it. Because, you know, the coincidences and the, just the things that run into each other. Uh, and he does kind of, I mean, and it's all about the spectacle. Mm. So, so it's fine and you embrace it and it's so fun and beautiful. But I guess, and again, that's been done by the master and other masters. So I guess my attempt was, let's let's take that box, but let's bring it down to a more grounded level in terms mm. of tone. And mm. uh, let's have a character who, yes, is a fish out of water, but not only that, he's also completely unfit for the situation and is going through a, a personal crisis as a, mm. as a human being. Mm. So, in that sense, I guess the tone I would find to be quite different uh, from those types of Hitchcock films where it's, I find it to be more heightened, more fantastic for different reasons. Uh, I, I like the idea of, of it feeling a bit more, uh, a bit closer and more uh, relatable. Uh, mm-hmm. I think of, um, I was talking the other day about someone uh, indirectly I think of Friedkin, uh, because even his his genre genre movies, they all have people in them. Mm-hmm. They don't feel like characters; they feel like people. So mm-hmm. I guess that that was something in terms of tone that was inspiring to me. Mm-hmm. You know, Ferdy, I'm very fascinated by just filming schedules, and I I've I obviously loved what John David did here. I loved what he did in Tenet. And I was interested to know in terms of timing and correct me if I'm wrong on this because you never know what you're reading is true, that I believe you shot this in April of 2019 and then he went to Tenet right afterwards, it seems like. And I was just curious about how close that was in terms of that. And like while you were filming Beckett, which was I know was originally born to be murdered, but when you were filming the film, how close was he to Tenet and was he already like in prep for that as he was shooting yours? It sounds like he went right to it. Well, uh, we started shooting in February and we finished at the end of April. And in the middle of shooting, we discovered that he was going to be in Tenet. And, uh, you know, we got to the end. He actually shot something else that he had lined up after us for not very long and then started or or probably right away started the very intense prep he had to start for Tenet. Uh, you know, running backwards and those crazy things that he did. Uh, <laughs> um, and then and then he shot that summer. Yeah, I think he shot that summer. He, but I, did, I do remember he shot something else between the two movies. That's crazy. And then uh, I guess since I, bring, I brought this up, I did want, I did want to ask you this. Uh, Born to be Murdered was your original title. 
Um, and then I think after it was acquired, it became what it is now, which is Beckett. I was wondering yeah. if you could speak on your original title, what that title originally meant to you and kind of how you landed on Beckett and kind of maybe that timeline and that process. Look, the original title to me was, it was basically one of the first things I came up with. It was, it's a line from the third man. That, yeah, Joseph Cotton, man, what a great freaking yeah, movie that, that is. Trevor yeah, Trevor Howard tells jo to Joseph Cotton, he's, because Joseph Cotton is, you know, sticking his nose in things he's not supposed to. Yeah. And, and Trevor Howard tells him, the way you're behaving, you were born to be murdered. <laughs> and I like that, uh, that, of course, actually that, you know, the way, how clueless Joseph Cotton is in that movie was something inspiring, like we were discussing earlier. Uh, I like what that line evoked. So I put it at the, you know, on the top of the story because it evoked the right things to me. Mm. Uh, that said, you know, then, you know, the screenplay, various incarnations of the screenplay, the movie and everything. And at the end of the day, this concept of the character being so central and upfront in the story and the perspective of the film uh and you know we chose this name for him which is kind of an unusual name it just felt right to, to put to make that clear right from the get-go hmm. and cool. if you're interested about scheduling uh, i have to say uh this you'll find this funny uh, alicia vikander was shooting was actually shooting the green knight uh as we were shooting in cool. she was shooting in ireland and she flew on friday night to Greece. Uh, Saturday, woke up. Uh, we shot Saturday. We shot Sunday. We shot Monday morning. And then she flew back to Ireland and continued shooting. Oh my <laughs> gosh. Wait, Have she did your entire movie in that one, in that, in that one, in that Correct. three days fan oh my yeah, god yeah. wait Sean wants to know did you see the green knight we have were you curious. seen you... have you seen her i have not yet? i can't wait i've been a fan of david lowry for for a long time now and is, uh, i can't wait it's magnificent and she is magnificent in it i know you're going to appreciate so much uh I'm, I'm what, sure, what she gives to that sure. Uh, we have time for one more. I'll get you out of here on this one. Uh, it's, you know, you were mentioning John David jumping around from project to project. And I think we as an audience are still trying to figure out uh, the, the complete depth and extent of his range. Uh, what does he bring Maybe. as a collaborator? Uh, what's it like working with him? Well, that's definitely the magic. You know, I, I like that. That was kind of the first thing that struck me about him when I saw I saw Black Plansman and I saw Monsters and Men and how different those two performances are, obviously the characters, but also technically how he approached the performance was so different. And then of course, you know, we keep seeing that continue into yet more directions. So that range, I have to say, probably what is fantastic to witness is it comes from a place of passion, of course, and craft, but a lot is instinct. So basically, what I see an artist with a great talent who reacts to things that instinctually give him, uh, a, 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 you know, stimulate him. And, uh, you know, we spoke a lot in working on this character. We spoke at length before starting the shooting. We shared movies and, and other material and uh, really, you know, talked a lot about all the things inside and outside. The character mm. uh but once we got to set I'll, I'll, you know i just i saw him really 
summon something very instinctual and very deep out of the context of everything we worked on and created around him he just sort of it was always surprising always beautiful and exciting to witness so uh i think because you know he he's obviously so uh natural and instinctual probably we will just keep seeing more and more range mm -hmm. yeah yeah Ferdy, sure. before you go i just have one more quick thing are you are you going to strike a 35 millimeter print of this uh, i know it's only on going to be on netflix but will you will you have a print that you make and keep i, I was always wondered about that I'm I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Uh, I uh, look. It's difficult nowadays. I would I would love one. I would love one. I haven't uh, organized it yet. Let's say there is a there is a, a, a my first short film we did with that. Actually, we did completely. There was no. There was a scan, of course, but uh, the the master is one roll of film. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so I kept that for a long time and then, and now it's in the Sundance Institute actually, but, but it, that was cool. Like, but with the movie, it's a bit more messy because it's a bunch of roles. That's <laughs> okay. We'll, more practical. we'll make some calls, Freddie. We'll make it happen for you. Yeah. I, I, I want you to have a 35 millimeter print of this movie. I want you that deserve too. it. Yeah. <laughs> but, but also a way to screen it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, dude. Absolutely. Well, Tarantino uh, saw Gunpowder Milkshake and, and, and then they struck a 35 millimeter print and played it at the New Beverly. They should do the same thing for Beckett. I would love that. I would love that. Look, <laughs> Somebody I mean, I'm, all, I'm all about the film. Like you were saying earlier, it's, uh, it, it's never going to die. It's just part of, it, of the DNA of cinema. And while some movies are better shot digital for some reasons, it just, uh, I, I feel very, very affectionate and, uh, and uh, connected to 35 millimeter. Yeah, that's too it's, it's romantic. It really is. Well, Ferdy, we can't thank you enough for your time. And uh, thank we can't you. wait for people to finally check out Beckett. And uh, hopefully, we'll get a chance to talk to you uh, again down the road. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. And August 13th on Netflix, everybody. Check out Beckett. Phenomenal filmmaker. Ferdy, thank you. I right, want to thank Netflix for giving us time with Ferdy. Uh, really great, interesting conversation. And look for his film, Beckett, coming up on Netflix. I think we're going to review it next week uh, on next week's show because we have a lot to get to in terms of talking points. And we want to leave room for Suicide Squad uh, later this episode. So let's get into the uh, the bombshell that dropped after we recorded, of course, uh, last week's episode. And that is Scarlett Johansson. Uh, filing a lawsuit against the Walt Disney Company, and this is a complicated situation, but from what I understand, because I kind of wrote on it today, um, she is alleging not a direct breach of contract, but she is alleging that the parent company, Walt Disney, Walt Disney Company, uh, forced Marvel's hand, uh, which then Marvel, as a subsidiary, is the one who is in breach of contract, but not necessarily, because there's language in Scarlett Johansson's contract that says she will get that Black Widow will get a theatrical distribution uh, of up to fifteen hundred screens or above. Now, was her it side exclusive? Is exclusive? No, it doesn't no. say exclusive in her contract. It says a theatrical release of up to a uh, fifteen hundred screens or more. Now, oh, her side is I trying to argue. That. Her side is trying to argue that that implies uh theatrical exclusivity. exclusivity yes and and theoretically i think she's right i don't think the conversation of the disney plus streaming was even a factor when she signed her black widow contract but reality caught up and the idea of putting on streaming uh made that part of the conversation now 
I think her side has also said, and I could be wrong about this, but I think they've said that they tried to renegotiate the contract with Disney and and they're claiming that Disney did not respond or did not express any interest in renegotiating that contract. And that's what's causing the problem. So, you know, an analyst spoke to the rap recently. And one of the points that they made, which I found to be the most interesting, was that the decision by Disney um, was truly made. You know, we talk a lot on this show about the decision to put stuff on streaming and how it affects theatrical, but they were saying that the decision to put it on streaming was solely a play to move the stock price, that that the uh, growth of the subscriber base of Disney Plus as a streaming service uh, tangibly moves the stock price and that theatrical releases, uh, even Marvel ones, don't have that significant impact on the, the stock price, whether to go up or down. And I mean, we know that everything in this uh, industry is driven by dollars and so if if, you know, Bob Ch- Chapek, who's taking a beating uh, from from the decision at Disney to do this, if he's got hard data that's telling him that, yes, driving subscribers to Disney Plus is more uh, financially beneficial to Disney, then I think, you know, he's going to keep doing it. But, you know, I think we're almost at the tail end of this, too, because the next few Disney films, I know Jungle Cruise is on streaming right now, but like that's Shang-Chi my question. Says yeah. Is Are Jungle you thinking they're going to run into the same situation? Well, I, I didn't mean to cut you off, but right when you said Jungle Cruise, that that's the question I immediately had when I, when the box office report came out this week on Monday, right? So, so if I'm not mistaken, I think it did 30 million on Disney Plus, I believe, and then it or, did, yeah, 34.2 domestic and 30 million on Disney, so almost a almost a clean split, right? So my question then that the first question I had when I read those numbers was, are Dwayne Johnson and Emily Blunt going to sue? Because, yeah. I mean, in terms of that movie, I would imagine that movie was made or went into production bef- uh, or in pre-production before the pandemic, I'm, sure. I'm assuming. Right. And uh, right. So it's those contracts or whatever was built into that. I would imagine, again, I don't know for sure. I'm not a lawyer, but had similar language where it would have a, it would have a theatrical release on a certain number of screens. But did it use the word exclusive? Because back at that point it was assumed that everything was exclusive in theaters. So yes. does the rock and Emily Blunt follow suit? No pun intended here. Yeah. I'm not I, sure. Jake, I, I, so I have a question. Um, so the, the main concern from this arises from the idea that an actor has back end points uh, mm-hmm. based on how a film performs at the box office. Bonuses. They bonuses, have bonuses yes. that could kick in if the movie reaches. Yes. It's like an athlete. If an athlete has certain yes. statistics over the course of a season. So does the does the revenue brought in from Disney Plus count toward like the final box office tally? Like like no. did did Jungle so Jungle Cruise? How how can they say that Jungle Cruise technically could you say opened to sixty million this weekend? It didn't open to. 30 and 30. Well, they even claim, they claim 90. 90. They claim 90 because another 30 for international. Right. Okay. So, 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 but the number doesn't include, but I mean, but like Black Widow opening weekend brought in 60 million on Disney Plus. That's mm-hmm. a lot of extra money. So, Scarlett can't add that number to the final total that determines whether or not she gets those back end kicks. Uh, your, so, your, your question is does the Disney Plus money factor into her box into office the final end. number that they look at to determine whether or not she gets those back end deals i don't want to speak ignorantly here but that's the reason she's suing right is i don't think yeah that, i don't think that I don't she, they're, they're just gonna make a massive chunk of money and be like yeah that doesn't count though well yes. I, I i i think again again i'm not a lawyer so i, I don't want to speak out of turn here but i genuinely believe 
from based on what I've seen in the news and the story that that's the whole reason she's suing is because yes. that money isn't something that she's like I, if she was making a profit on that, I, 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 I could see her not suing. Right. Because I think it I think it even boils down to if she has contracts or, or uh, clauses in her contract that even give her a portion of the home video revenue, mm-hmm. they don't consider Disney Plus streaming as home video revenue. Even that's, that's separate. Yeah. Um, you know, that's streaming is so new to how this is being negotiated. And these stars that are used to uh, getting box office points don't have this built in. Now, that's I, I was on um, Cheddar, the news network Cheddar with an entertainment lawyer who said, like, everyone's paying attention to this because how it moves forward is going to be significant. Now, we talked on the show, I think it was last week, how Warner Brothers got ahead of this problem by just giving a lump sum money to their talent to say like, Hey, we're going to work out the streaming revenue side of it later, but here's, here's compensation, right? It's just, it's, right. it's kind of showing respect for your talent sure. with compensation, which was, that was Feige's uh, argument through back channels. You know, that, that sort of report that came out through the grapevine that he was really upset about how this happened because it looks bad in terms of how Marvel treats their talent or how Disney yeah. treats Marvel talent after Scarlet gives her, gives them nine, financially successful films over the course of this time. So do you guys think Rock and Blunt sue? This episode of Real Blend is brought to you by Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Power up your favorite characters and build a team to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and even challenge other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Arena. New ways to battle with your roster are released regularly and the meta is constantly evolving. And now you can sign on for Marvel Strike Force's new Deadpool Anniversary event in order to receive a generous gift containing character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, gear, and other great items. Better yet, each week during the Deadpool anniversary, players can complete events and receive even more special rewards and skins. If you want to get in on all the fun of Marvel Strike Force, be sure to use our promo code MAXPOOL, that's M-A-X-P-O-O-L, and thank you to Marvel Strike Force for supporting the show. Uh, the only thing I think that, that could have happened is that in an effort to prevent this from happening, they switched the con- um, they they amended the contracts prior to the release. Yeah, that they just they dove right back in and renegotiated. Uh, that actually makes them. sense because maybe they went to Rock and Blunt and were like, "Listen, you've seen the news. What yeah. should what, like in terms of I I don't know how that works because so correct me if I'm wrong on uh, in terms of money, Disney Plus pretty much keeps all of what they make on Disney plus or not or, or, or a, big, a bigger amount than theatrical is much bigger. Okay. But yeah, but I read somewhere recently that like a portion of it goes somewhere, but I forget where it goes. Okay. I forget but they're how making they more they on plus up. than they are in a the lot theatrical. More. Yes. A lot more than how they split it with the, with the theaters. Do you think that they are less willing to negotiate and work with Scarlett Johansson because they're kind of done with her and that character? I mean, the rock tweeted today that they're having a meeting at Disney for a Jungle Cruise, like a Jungle Cruise sequel meeting. They're not going to have that meeting if they've just screwed over their two lead actors financially. Do you think they're Correct. much more willing to screw over ScarJo? Well, because they're the kind of like, well, we don't need Black Widow anymore. The only reason why I don't think that's the case is because she was going to produce that Haunted Mansion. Uh, sure, yeah, but movie. they can still move forward with that movie, whether or not she's producing it or not. 
they can. I yeah. My question kind of was if she was still integral to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, right? Would she have made this a public lawsuit? And I don't think she would have. I think they would have found some way behind the scenes to like think yeah. about the think about the number of these conversations that happen behind the scenes oh, that we're sure. not privy to. Yeah, I mean, like, you know? isn't like, that where Downey makes like? Didn't Downey make like fifty million on Endgame alone yes. just from back end points? Oh, I, I, or did that, they pay him up front? I think no, they paid I've heard him. That no, I think he got back in. I think he got yeah, a massive really? back end yes. deal on Endgame. Well, that's okay. how Matt Damon would have made all of his money on Avatar. Was yeah. he would have gotten the Matt the two percent or whatever that was? Uh, one of the <laughs> I was reading. Um, so Arnold put a book out. Arnold Schwarzenegger put a book out a couple years ago, and I think in the book, I correct me if I could be wrong specifically about where it is in the book, but he tells a story about Twins being the movie he made the most money off of in his career mm-hmm. because he took less money up front and took and 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 pivoted to the back end so basically you're gambling right you're yeah, it's a I think gamble Nicholson like, was mm. one of the first people to do that for batman for batman right. i think he did yeah. too yeah and, and it's a huge gamble and, and especially like batman i i feel like is safer because it's batman people know what batman sure. is but p- mm-hmm. to put twins out when, which is an yeah. original i guess an original film i don't know if it's based on anything but I mean, that's obviously the height of Arnold's career. So every nineties Arnold is like gold. Everything was gold that he touched, except for like Last Action Hero, unfortunately, which is one of my favorites of his. But that movie bombed. But in terms of money, he said that Twins he made so much money on the back end because I think yep. he took like like I think he took like SAG minimum or something up front, like a yeah. very cheap amount, and said I want X amount of percentage of the box office. And I think he made the most money in his career, at least one of them on that film for sure. It's well, it's huge. not even just, it's not even box office profits. Like in the nineties and into the early two thousands, like all that money was earned in DVDs. Yeah. Yes. It was so much I mean, look, money. Look behind Kevin. In, <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. I, I paid so for everyone's I, houses, but everyone who's in yeah. these movies, <laughs> you guys, you guys will not believe the kickback I'm going to get. If real blend hits 200 episodes, like, mm. why do you think I'm here every week? I'm just trying, I'm just trying to get to 200. <laughs> yeah, we're trying to, on it right away. <laughs> those, that, that, those syndicated numbers. Oh my God. Dude, yeah, like, so, that's a, I just, I just want to put this show into syndication and then yeah. I'm going to step away. I'm telling so, you right so now, we don't, you, you, I'm sorry, go ahead, Sean, sorry, go ahead. Well, I'm just saying we, we won't know what's going to happen. I don't know if Scarlett Johansson's settlement, or first off, I don't think it's ever going to get to any sort of, you know, not, not like a trial, you know, but I'm not even quite sure if it's going to get to court. I think it's going to get resolved, you know, somewhat behind the scenes where Disney's going to pay off uh, a significant portion. Um, but, you know, the thing I find not uncomfortable about it, but like, you know, you because Disney's response was just like, hey, it's COVID and, you know, I find it they, they found it insensitive. But like the but the part of that that I understand is that like the whole industry is is in limbo right now. Right. Like, yes, I understand that, like, you didn't get your box office potential because they had to put it on streaming. But like the studios are also still trying to figure out, like, how to move this stuff forward. Now, does that mean that she doesn't have a case? No, I mean, she does. She absolutely has a reason to bring it up. Um, and of course, Disney's a multi-billion yeah, dollar so I have company. a hard time feeling bad for a company. <laughs> That, that I know. released like like four different billion dollar movies two years ago like i know but the reason why and i want to transition us into this next bit is because when you look at the jungle cruise numbers like it's a movie that made 90 million total you know and it made 34 million domestically it made 30 million at home on disney plus people are as much as we want them to go back to theaters people are staying home and they're watching these movies and we talked for 18 months about how it, we just want to get those, we get, need to get those movies back into the pipeline and we got to get the industry kind of moving along. And right now, 
um, you know, a big chunk of the people are staying home and watching them, uh, watching them on, on streaming. I, I, one thing I'm interested in knowing, kind of just real quick on the Scarlett Johansson thing, um, just in terms of that being a Disney film and now the Jungle Cruise box office that we're discussing um, with Free Guy coming out, being a, mm. being released through Disney. But a still, you know, when that film opened up on the screen today, it was 20th Century Studios. It wasn't Disney. Um, mm. But I still wonder how they avoided that being a premiere access and a theatrical. I, I'm assuming it has something to do with the 20th Century Fox element of it and kind of how i think it was made with that studio so it's not going to be disney plus right no free guys See, that's so frustrating because i i had to miss the screening this week and i really want to see it but i kind of don't really feel like going to the movies to see it and so like that would that, honestly i would have paid the 30 dollars to watch that at home i'll tell you right now that's a theater movie yeah All but the theater's in. so far away it's like a half mile that way <laughs> it, it, that's and then okay, and it's the craziest thing whenever i go to the theater when it's not a screening you get recognized expect me to pay Oh, yeah, they do. That's very like, true. You don't tell them movie. who you are? For God's sakes. Well, then Jake they ask me to pay more. Jake's takes. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, yeah, Free Guy is only in theaters. And so is the next film uh, we're going to discuss, which is <laughs> Venom. <laughs> Venom, Let There Be Venom. Carnage, uh, which Venom. had a second trailer <laughs> drop online. So now I've shifted my um, I've shifted my uh, anticipation for this movie because I was expecting it to potentially be. Um, like a serious, like a serious comic book movie. And it's not like they're just going for comedy. It's a full blown comedy. And so now I'm going to treat it that way. Um, and because when Venom <laughs> says, oh, shit, it's a red one. Like, <laughs> that's just that's just funny. So I'm going to just treat it as something that's just going to be really funny. And um, and maybe that will help me uh, appreciate it more. Uh, Kev, you loved the first Venom. What do you think of this trailer? Well, love is a pretty strong word to use. <laughs> <laughs> what? You, you, what do you mean love? I, you were like double ooh. down on this movie, man. Oh, double down. Uh, first of all, I liked Venom a lot. I never said mm-hmm. I, uh, if I ever said I loved Venom, it might it may have been in the middle of an argument where you guys were just destroying me for liking it. I'm like, I love this movie. No, but Venom is actually a movie that I've watched three or four times. And I will give a very specific reason why I like that film a lot. Um, my brother-in-law, Scott, Lauren's brother, loves that movie. Uh, and we watch it a lot when he comes over. And it's just a fun movie. I, I actually like Tom Hardy in the film. I think everything that he has with this, what do you call that? The character? I know it's Venom. Symbiote. 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 I yeah. love those scenes. Is Venom a great film? No, um, but I definitely think it was better than people gave it credit for. I actually thought Hardy's performance was great. Um, I'm excited about Venom too, primarily because Andy Serkis is directing it, um, right. and I think with Serkis's name on it, I'm just excited to see what he does because Serkis has worked with some of the greatest filmmakers of all time. That doesn't make him a great filmmaker, but it, he has a lot to learn from. With from Peter Jackson, Lord of the Rings. Obviously, he did amazing work on the Apes films with Matt Reeves. One of the Apes, yeah. I mm-hmm. mean, he's he's worked with some pretty damn good filmmakers um and it, it interests me that he wants to do this film like it's a, it's a sequel um it, you know the first film wasn't well received you know and I'm, I'm 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 kind of all in on woody harrelson's carnage i think it's kind of fun um but i i also i also can't watch these films now without thinking about sean laughing at them because i know sean <laughs>, laughs at the carnage because he's sean will always send us a photo in our Hold text on. thread of, car, of, of 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 uh of him in the cell at the end of the first venom movie but <laughs> with the big the big fake wig but wait there's an element of this trailer that i can't overlook okay which is how Woody Harrelson's character allegedly gets infected with the symbiote. Sure. He he bites Tom Hardy's <laughs> hand through the through the jail cell Listen. and then says, I've tasted blood. 
and it doesn't taste like that. Listen, Sean, I can't defend yeah. a lot of the things you don't like about Venom. I can't defend yeah, them. Sure. I, 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 I yeah. can't sit here and say you're wrong because you're not wrong. It's just that <laughs> for some reason, Venom hit in the right way for me. I don't know what it yeah. was, but I, I, I've revisited it a few times. I, you know, it just worked um, for me. But I also get the criticisms. The new one trailer it's all to me. It's all about Andy Serkis. I'm very excited to see mm-hmm. what he does with it. And I love Tom Hardy in the role. And I think it's cool that he voices Venom and has these conversations back and forth with himself. It's cool. I think it's fun. That's I'm what excited. I, I had to ask that because I, I didn't know that for certain. Is the Venom voice. That's Tom Hardy. Yeah. Doing the Venom voice. Yeah. Yeah. It's Tom Hardy. Yeah. <laughs> I swear to God, I laughed really hard in that trailer when he goes, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's Tom Hardy. I mean, if I'm wrong, let one. me know, but I'm pretty sure it's Tom Hardy. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait. I can't wait. Jake, where are you? Anticipation level, one to ten. Uh, two. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't. I mean, like, it, I, well, here's the here's the thing. Here's what I here's what I will say. I respect about this movie. It doubles down in what it is. It basically yes. says, look, yeah. whether you liked that aspect of the first one, mm-hmm. that's what this series series is. And not only is that, it's really that this time. Yeah. No, um, really. And I respect that. Like, dude, you do you. Um, I think you know. I I think the the comparison that I made uh, a couple of months ago when when we first got to look at this was that. It reminds me of a superhero movie that would have come out like in the early 2000s, around the time mm. we got like the Ben Affleck Daredevil kind of thing. Yep. Um, it reminds me of that, and uh, and so had I been like 14 and watched this movie when it came out in 2003, absolutely, I would have been into it. I would have loved it, and you know, I just that everything that this movie doubles down on that it that it emphasizes, yes, this is what I am, is what I hated about the first one. So it's only, you know, while I respect that it is very much making its identity known, I hated its identity in the first one. So <laughs> it's just not, it's not going to work for me. I, I appreciate that it's not going to work for me. It's just not. And also, I think the CGI looks really bad. Uh, really bad. Uh, I disagree with that. It looks, I disagree, oh, I, the carnage oh, stuff looks cool, man. No, I, I thought yeah. that transition shot was I cool. Thought it, I thought it looked cool in a PlayStation 3 game. Listen, uh, no. one, one thing yes. I will say. One thing I will say about Venom, Venom is interesting because it's such a brutal concept. It's a Mm. really disturbing concept that this guy eats people's heads. And they make a joke out of it. Yeah, and and, and it's so interesting because in the first movie, that tone was fascinating to me because it's almost like so dark that they almost have to undercut it with the comedy, right? Because it's Mm. such a disturbing concept. It really is. I feel like this must have been what Batman mm. fans felt like when the Schumacher movies were coming out. Like, yeah. okay, this is not this is not the the version of the character I want to see, but this is what we have right now. So let me wait for these to finish, and then in like fifteen twenty years, maybe we'll get a real version. And then like we I got feel, Nolan. Yeah. So I so you know what? In like fifteen or twenty years, we'll get like the actual like Venom movies that I want to see. <laughs> but you know what? If the if if these movies work for you. You like you do you, baby. Enjoy it. Uh, and Jake, right. to your point, I do actually want to see a genuinely great Venom film. Yes. I mean, I, 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 yes. I, I'm not going to sit here on a high horse and say that these are great Venom movies. It's like a regular hided horse. I, 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 but I, I do, I do, I, I do think that as I watch these films, it's the comedy that works for me, and I, I, I get that that doesn't work for a lot of people. So if you're not really in on that bit of it. That's where I shifted. That's, That's where, where I shifted, shifted is yep. that I didn't want, I don't want it. I really don't want it sure. in my Venom. I but if it. they're going to give it to me, 
<laughs> then I'm going to have to get on board. I'm going to have to get on board with it um, because I'm, I'm tired of hating it. So. That's such a strange attitude. What if, it, it what, is. What, if like, what if like Dune came out and it was a musical? It's like, well, I don't want it to be a musical, but they're <laughs> well, turning it into a musical, so I accept that. I also want to give Riz Ahmed credit for uh, Venom. He was good. In, I thought he was good, a good villain in the first Venom movie. And again, he's undercut by all the ridiculous nature of the film. And I don't think people just forget Riz Ahmed's in that movie. But I actually like Riz Ahmed in that film. I actually oh, thought, do you know who's... You know who's really miscast in that movie is uh, Jenny Slate trying to play a scientist. <laughs> it's not good casting. Uh, I don't remember. I don't remember disliking Jenny Slate. I just don't uh, remember if I particularly loved the, the character. But I, I don't remember. She didn't have. It wasn't really well written. To her, to, you know, in her. I defense, do like her a lot. Really, She's very really funny. Well written. Yeah. Yes. Um, let's move on to something that's not very funny at all, which is a documentary that we want to recommend uh, yes. briefly. Because have you haven't seen? Have you seen the Woodstock doc? I have not. But Max? I'm, Fascinated to hear both of your conversations. And I'll, I will tell you this. Um, so this is the Lollapalooza from 90... Uh, Woodstock. Oh, this Woodstock. is Woodstock. 99. 99. Woodstock 99. I, I have mm-hmm. Lollapalooza on my mind because of it yeah. happened in yeah. Chicago. Yeah. Hey. Um, yeah, so do we. But Woodstock 99 was... And, I, and again, I haven't seen the documentary, so I want you guys to take on that. But my perspective on Woodstock 99 was that it always had a disturbing quality to it in terms of the things you guys are going to get into in terms of what was going down. I'm assuming that I don't know all the details, but I always got a vibe that it was a pretty, a pretty wild event and a pretty disturbing event and a pretty dirty event. Um, for me, particularly, I grew up on a lot of that music. So if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, corn played there and Limp Biscuit played there. Limp Biscuit. So Metallica. Was, yeah. So Metallica. I, I, I was always jealous of that. I, I wanted to go to that show so bad. Uh, because yeah. Corn really, Lim- see, you are, see, I, don't, I don't remember this at all. Maybe I was just because I know I'm a few years younger than you, Kev. Maybe yeah. like I was just of that age where like I was, I would have been you 11 when this country happened. Country also, though. Well, so yeah, when yeah. I was, and I don't mean that. In, I don't mean that as yeah. a slide. No, no, you're as right. a slide. No, you're so, right. Yeah, this wins. doesn't happen in country music. Early '90s, Kevin was huge Corn Limp Biscuit fan. So I saw Corn in '97. Uh, with Incubus and Orgy, it was a great show. My dad took me to see them. Um, but Corn at the at ninety nine at Woodstock, that time, that Limp Biscuit time period, was a huge, huge deal. Um, and like that's the only reason I knew about. Well, I mean, clearly it was a Woodstock event. So you know, my dad was like, well, "Oh, I remember the original Woodstock." But I want to hear about the documentary. In, in hindsight, Kev, we're very glad you didn't go. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it, it wouldn't. It probably wouldn't have worked out for you. Okay. Uh, this is on HBO Max. And um, it's it's definitely worth watching, um, but you should know going into it that it's really, really depressing um, in a lot of different ways. Uh, it's fascinating. You know, I was so compelled by it and it was fun to watch. Uh, I was watching the text thread as Jake was watching it because I had already seen it and I kind of knew he was commenting on a lot of things. It goes each like day by day. It goes through the whole setup and then it goes day by day through the course of this weekend long festival. And um, but what I thought it did really interesting is that it paralleled um, the 94 mm-hmm. version of the festival, which, you know, while not separated by very many years, so almost kind of the same target audience, people who wanted to like rekindle the idea of Woodstock, even though Woodstock is very much a 1960s theme, but bring back the idea of peace and love and gathering together, you know, to see all these bands play. But it, I think it really did come down to, in a big way, the bands that they programmed had a different effect on the crowd at 94 than they did at the crowd at 99. Um, and it was like the minute that they talked about the lineup in a row, you just knew that like having those kids out there in the heat um, over the course of this amount of time, 
you know, and all the stuff that comes with being at a major festival, you know, they talked about $4 waters and supplies being hard to get to. And the idea of like the bathrooms that were set up for this place were just not adequate in the least bit. And any kind of medical tent that might have been there and the amount of merchandise that was there, it was like it was anti the idea of Woodstock. Um, so I remember the 94 one. I was in college in 94, but I don't remember the 99 one beyond the headlines of what happened. But even if you think about like how bad it could have potentially gotten, I think the concert got worse. Like, you know, the 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 stuff that happens at it got worse. Mm-hmm. It, the documentary really gets into just some primal, you know, horrible behavior uh, that everybody at the show was responsible for. And the more that the documentary played out and the more that I just wanted to, um, you know, I, I don't want to blame the artists, Jake. But at any point, did you start to blame the bands? I mean, like for egging, there, for egging people there, on. Kind there's of there's a kind moment of. where uh, you have to question how much responsibility Fred Durst holds for. And granted, things were already bad by the time Limp Bizkit t- took the stage. But mm-hmm. there's literally a quote that I think is hilarious where it shows a clip of something Fred Durst says that you could argue like kind of sets off the crowd. And then one of the talking heads says Fred Durst is a fucking moron. And it's implicating like, dude, you had to have seen what was happening at that point. Right. And so why would you you have to be smart enough to know what saying that would have done? You know, it's mm-hmm. it's it's like you're you know, it's it's like you see a puddle of gasoline and like a, a, a lit match and you can like, you know, it, you're choosing to kick the lit match over to the gasoline and saying like, look, I don't, it's not my responsibility for what happens when fire hits gasoline. But it's like, yeah, but you kicked it over there, man. You had to have known what was happening. It wasn't even just those guys. It was the Chili Peppers that I, I was most shocked at. Because yeah. by this point, by the time they got on stage, and I think the Chili Peppers are kind of like they're into the whole peace, love, yes. California, Southern California vibe. Before Sean, I've seen them a couple of times. They're yeah, and one uh, of the best live bands I've ever seen. But Kev, let me tell you this: they played Sunday night, and by Sunday night, um, the campground was burning. I mean, like <sighs> they showed the view from down. the stage, and there were like five or six large fires taking place around the thing and the organizers said to anthony kiedis according to the documentary hey please announce you know that everybody should disperse calm down and instead the band went out and played their cover of Jimi hendrix fire um and it was like that's that's ridiculously stupid that's when i was like what are you guys doing here but also i think what i love most about the the documentary sean so you're 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 absolutely right Uh, i was texting these guys while we were watching and it's kind of broken up into three acts friday saturday sunday and each day you think i kept thinking okay this has to be as bad as it gets and then the next day it's going to show how they came back and cleaned it up and ended up being fine and it 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 ends as bad as it could possibly like every time you think oh my god how could it possibly be worse um yeah but it also dives into who was at that concert. Like, how, like what kind of people allow that sort of thing to happen? And, and it really dives into the, like, who were these, like, angry, older teenagers, young 20-year-old, basically white boys, and why do they have so much anger and angst within them that when you gather them together in a group, that this is the results because because mm-hmm. uh, people should be able to gather in a large group without mass amounts of women being raped, without destruction being made to, to, to property, without literally people rolling around in feces like yeah. it, it should not like like 
that's not okay. Like that's not okay in this society. So what? What? Who are these people? So that that's what happens when you put them together. And I saw yeah. someone make a really interesting point on on Twitter that those people, that audience, that crowd, that age group, that mentality are the people who stormed the Capitol on January sixth. Which I thought that's a really later. that's a really interesting connection. Um, not making sure. a, a, a statement one way or the other politically, because that's not what this show does. But what I do love about this documentary is it's not just here's what happened A to B to C to D. It dives into why. Like, why did this happen? Why was it allowed to happen? And if you think that, like, you're going to be angry just hearing about the events, wait until you hear. I'm getting just chills thinking about this. The uh, the promoter of the concert try to explain mm. why it's the women's fault that they're being assaulted and raped. Like, get up yeah. in front of a microphone and say, Crazy. well, if the women, which which is a, which I know is an issue that, that, that women in this world have been dealing with, like like being, being blamed for men's actions. But it's just like, and so the documentary says, no, like, it's, that's, it's not like, let's focus on why, like, who are the men that are doing that? It's a, it's a brilliant little slice of sociology that, that is focused from this concert. And I think it's, it's a brilliant, it honestly... I know oftentimes I don't put movies that go straight to streaming on, on you know, I, I don't know whether how I'm going to do top 10 or whatever, but like this, this would be a top 10 movie for me. I just thought it was absolutely brilliant. And it's, the thing I love about it, it too, is that you could say that it's the people of that time frame, but they make a parallel to Coachella, you know, which mm-hmm. started hey, three months right later on this. Yes. Three, three months. months later. And they're like, you know, it was the way that that festival approached it's. I think they handed out free water to people as they arrived yeah. at Coachella instead of overcharging the kids and making yes. them angry at the festival at Woodstock. So um, it, it's a fa- like Jake said, it's a tremendously fascinating yeah. documentary. I'm sorry, Kev, what do you want to throw, throw in? Oh, no, it, it, it's just interesting to me because, again, I haven't seen the documentary yet. I've been going to concerts all my life and like there's there, you know, I, I've been out on the lawns before it shows like and there, there there's an aggressive nature to the way people react or interact at concerts. And it. And it could be on a wide variety of music. I've seen crazy stuff at Dave Matthews concerts or crazy stuff at like country music concerts. And like, I I just, there's an interesting element. That's why I want to watch the documentary now, because there's such an aggressive nature um, of certain amounts of people who are at shows that just kind of like go crazy. Um, And there's something about that that I'm interested in kind of, that's why I want to watch the doc. So I don't really have anything to say specifically in terms of what Jake was saying. I I would love because you, I think you've, you've been to far more concerts, uh, concerts, particularly more. um, And granted, we've also, also talked about how like crowds for, for metal audiences are often great. And and so I, 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 by no means do I want to lump any fans of any particular band or type of music into what happened at this concert. Um, because you know, I, it, if Kevin is, is an example of the type of friend who is, who loves heavy metal, then, then heavy metal yeah. fans are great. Um, so I, but I, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts with your background in music on yeah. that documentary. I'm fa- I mean that what you just told me about the Anthony Kiedis thing already kind of made me mad. It was I can't, so frustrating. I, I, I can't believe that that is crazy to me because I, I've been to so many shows where someone has gotten hurt while crowd surfing or, or my, in a mosh pit and the the I've had I've seen so many artists literally stop the concert and and say, excuse me, everybody, someone just fell. Pick that dude up and yeah. get him to safety or we're not playing anymore. Only like, one person at, Wood, at Woodstock 99 came out. And I can't remember who it was, Sean. And this is a shame because I should be able to remember the one person that did the right thing. But only one artist 
came out and said, "Hey, I've been seeing a lot of women be groped. Like, don't do that. That's like, oh, it's not your. That's that? not you know. It's not your. Just because a, a woman is crowd surfing doesn't give you the permission to grope them. Right. And right. only yeah. one artist said that. And it was even. It was earlier. It was earlier in in the show, and it's it's. I, I I'm kind of. Was. I'm kind of ashamed get, that I don't know the one person that did the right thing. I, I I'm bummed that I don't know the person. People get crazy at concerts, and and especially in a Woodstock environment, I. I I in I don't even want to imagine um the energy of that vibe of that mm-hmm. of that of that show because I've seen like I told you I've seen aggressive nature in just like smaller form shows um like I went to a Dave Matthews show I saw some crazy stuff at a Dave Matthews show I mean like people on the lawn when they're kind of out of the seats like because Woodstock's all standing right everyone's just standing yeah. at Woodstock right yeah but here's the rub about this one too and you'll see this when in the doc <clears throat> because in '94 they didn't have it enclosed. So people were kind of coming and going and the organizers who sell tickets were annoyed that they couldn't like police everybody who was coming and going. So Ooh. for this one, it was a an abandoned military base uh, in upstate New York also. So it had fences all the way around it. So once you were in, there was no getting out. And like it really was like a prison situation. The heat, you were on this like blacktop. Like imagine like, yeah, it's like a, it's, you're at an airport. Imagine you're at an airport yeah. on like the, this black tar and what they said, like crazy record heat. They're talking about yes. like there, there are shots of people trying to hide under 18 wheeler carriages Scary. Um, to, to like get in the in the shade because of how unbearably hot. It's just it's incredible. dude. by Friday, the bathrooms had given out and the Ugh. people were sliding in what they thought was mud and wasn't. Ugh. I mean, and Friday, that was Friday. Yeah, that was Friday. Uh, yeah. The thing well, that really so, disturbs me, just based on your conversation, is what happened to the women who were there. Like that, it's, it's, it's like, horrifying. It's because horrifying. Growing up, like I had heard about the feces stuff. Like I had heard stories about people like sliding in feces, and like that always was disgusting to hear. But I, I don't think I had ever heard anything specifically yeah. about the groping and the and and the and the assaulting element yeah. of it, which is really really messed yeah. up. And like now, yeah. now that you're talking about that, like I can't even. Because it's interesting well, because it, it, in, a, in a crowded space like that, the scariest aspect of it is no one knows what's going on. Yeah. Because there's yeah. so many people around and the music is so loud. It just makes me feel so, so sad for any no, woman they who was in about, that crowd getting assaulted. They talked about that the crowd was so jam packed together that you basically like you. They said it's you just swayed with it like you had no control over. over and I've been body. in a couple of crowds like that. Yeah. Uh, and it's really scary. Scary. Like, that is if you really fall, scary where if you fall, you're you and you're on the risk of being trampled. I'm I've always been kind of big. Like so if I'm in a situation like that, I can give myself some space. And quite often, like Michelle was standing in front of me, so I kind of put a space around her. But I can't imagine being like a 90-pound yeah. girl and just being lifted yeah. up and carried. And they the also bring like that, up so. the idea, and I know we gotta go from this point, but like 99, most people don't have cell phones. So if you right. came with oh, a, with yes. one or two other people and you lost them on day one. You lost them. Like yeah. that was it. Good yep. luck finding them again. Yeah, it's it's just, right. it's terrifying. That's actually yeah. really scary. Just your your it's, accounts of the doc are making me are giving me anxiety. Yeah. It starts it starts yeah. as a almost like a comedy. Like oh like look, it's people rolling around in poop and they think it's mud. You can kind of laugh at it and it's like oh it's gross. And by the end of the film, it's a horror film. Like it's, it's straight a up film. horror film. Jesus. Um, this week in movies, uh, rough transition. Uh, there's a movie called Vivo that's coming on Netflix. I'm gonna have to take Gabe's word for it because I'm not quite sure what it is. But it's uh, Lin Manuel Miranda. I think he's oh, involved. Oh yeah, in animated. It. Yeah. yeah. Is this the this, animated one? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I have this heard about that. An then. animated film. It's on Netflix. I haven't seen it. Um, I did ask. I reached out to cover it. I think there was just limited availability on it. But Lin Manuel Miranda is involved in it. I know it's an animated feature. 
Uh, it looks, I mean, from the images that I've seen across social media, it looks gorgeous. And anything Lin-Manuel Miranda is involved in, I'm, I'm going to watch. Yeah. So I'm, I'm actually looking forward to seeing it. There's a film called Nine Days that is starting to come out in limited release, and it has a really interesting cast, including Winston Duke and Zazie Beetz. And I, I think it has something to do with the afterlife. It mm-hmm. was it's, uh, it's I believe it's pre-life. Oh, is it? I believe okay. it's t- like speaking a to someone about. Thing? Yeah, like like what like talking to someone about what kind of soul you're going to have. Okay, it was at Sundance, so it's interesting. You know, late July, getting into August, mm-hmm. the Sundance movies tend to start making their way yeah. around. Coda, but next Coda week. is another one too. Is that what it is? We'll talk yeah. about that next week. Yeah. Um, I just got that screener link put into my Ooh, Apple yeah. thing of a Bob, so I definitely want to check that out. Um, so nine days is opening. No, none of us have seen it. I just got a screener link of it, so hopefully I get a chance to catch up with it this weekend. Um, but the big movie that's opening is is the Suicide Squad, James Gunn's version of the Warner Brothers movie. Um, I'll kick it off. I, I went four stars out of five on it. And, you know, I'll keep spoilers. Uh, th- there's no spoilers in this conversation. We're not going to give away anything. We want everybody to go out and see it. Um, I think it is the most James Gunn movie uh, that we've seen. I think literally they allowed James Gunn. If you if you've seen his earlier films like Super uh, and Slither and even some of the stuff that he made for Troma, you know, Troma is largely known for being uh, lower budget, you know, kind of grotesque horror, a lot of body horror, things like Toxic Avenger, uh, movies like that. Um, they allowed him to do that with a massive budget, you know. So, I mean, right off the bat, it, it announces that this is just going to be extremely violent. Uh, it's going to be really gory. It's going to lean into the hard R, you know, uh, ability that the studio gave him. And I was OK with that. Like, I, if you're going to do a Suicide Squad movie, then that's what I think you should do. Um, and I'd much rather you give a filmmaker the ability to do that from day one of his shoot than to take David Ayer's movie and try to, you know, shape it into the end product that James Gunn's film ends up being. I think some of the stuff that James Dunn do, uh, Gunn does with his characters is really remarkable uh, he has grown over the course of Guardians to really make us care about characters I never thought I would. So, you know, I went into this expecting like, oh, Harley's going to be a lot of fun and I can't wait to see what King Shark is or, you know, even John Cena's Peacemaker. But then I ended up loving Ratcatcher 2, who oh, I know yeah. nothing about. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, She's great. Like Weasel is a fascinating character to me. Yeah. Um, kind of gross and and weird. I loved uh, Idris Elba's character, Bloodsport, and so um. But because Gun makes you care, and of course King Shark. So um, Polka Dot Man. Oh, Polka Dot Man's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So all these characters that I think he spends a lot of time on uh, is really really great. I think they're better than the mission itself. Yes. And the mission is what it is. Um, and I know Kev's going to talk about this too. You do get a little bit desensitized <laughs> to the amount of violence. Um, but if you are expecting James Gunn's Suicide Squad, this movie delivers uh, completely on that. So, um, Kev, I'm going to throw to you because I want you to sort of give your take on it. And I know you were saying that about the violence. Yeah, I mean, in terms of character, like it's an interesting film because I, I went four out of five as well. It's it's a, it's very good. I, I really enjoyed it, but I found the characters way more interesting than, than the story. I, to be mm-hmm. honest with you, I thought the story was a bit convoluted. I actually don't remember... S- specific details about what even they were trying to do. Like I was just so in, I was so involved in the character element of it that I didn't really care what they were doing. I just wanted to see them kind of jump into a world and kind of interact and have fun with each other. Um, mm-hmm. What I do find interesting is like, you know, I, I rewatched David Ayer's film the other day and, you know, I still firmly believe that we need to see his cut. I, I, I think the first 40 minutes of that film were outstanding. Um, and again, it's a very different film. It's 35 millimeter. It's a it's a it's a, you know, it's a it's a def, it's a different look. It, it's a different feel. Um, this movie is interesting because, like you said, the violence 
it got to a point where I got a little numb uh, and desensitized to it because it, it, he leans into the R rating so much. And I, I found it interesting that I just kind of like was like, I didn't even like it didn't phase me to see someone get ripped in half or or a shark bite someone's head off. Or um, And I think those things would normally be really shocking. Um, mm-hmm. But I think in today's times, it's weird. Like if this movie came out 10 years ago, imagine how shocking this movie would have been. Right. When I watched it in 2021, I'm like, yeah, this is this is shocking. It's violent. But it got to a point where the the violence became a, a, a bit numbing in terms of my experience. That's not a bad thing. Um, it just I just think that maybe they could have picked and choose where they got really graphic um, and kind of like and gave a shock uh, fa- a factor to it. So, you know, just to build on that slightly, <clears throat> there are things that happen in the in the back half of this movie. That would that should be really really shocking, but, but they're they not aren't. because of so much stuff that happens in the first thirty right. minutes of this movie. Yeah, yeah. So it's like ten minutes of this movie. Yeah, yeah. he yeah. he shocks you so much early on that I almost feel like the ending is given a bit of a disservice considering how much shock you've already been through. Um, yeah. So it, it to me it, it, this film works well because of the characters and and like you know in terms of our rating. Um, I, I do feel the R rating obviously suits the story. It, it, it plays with the characters well. Uh, my favorite character in the whole film is Peacemaker. Um, and I can't wait to see the series. I think John Cena, Gunn found exactly what Cena's great at, right? So if you look at what Apatow gave him in Trainwreck, that comedy, and then you take in the action perspective of who he is as a wrestler and that, and that physical element to his character, and you put those two things together together, you kind of have Peacemaker. It's a, it's a very funny character, but also badass at the same time. Um, and Cena, to me, every time he was on screen, just it it, it was my favorite part of the movie. He was incredible. Um, I love Ratcatcher as well. Uh, there's a lot of great characters. Das Malchino does a great job as Polka Dot Man. I actually think this is um, Margot's best turn as Harley Quinn, too. Um, I, I, I think that as much as I love Birds of Prey, uh, as, as much as I liked her in Air's film, he gun gives her so much to do here in terms of character arc. And like, she's not like one note. The character has a lot going on in this film. There's a lot. Mm -hmm. I mean, Carly Quinn hasn't ever been one note, but in this particular instance, in this many characters, he does a great job of juggling and giving them all arcs. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really hard thing to do as a filmmaker, especially on a film this large, because every character has some type of emotional arc. Idris, uh, everybody does peacemaker. Um, so I'm, I, I, I had such a fun time with the film. Last thing I'll say about it is this, because he shot on an IMAX and shot with a one nine Oh ratio, it's going to look amazing at home. Um, and this is me telling you that you need to see it in the theater. If you can, if you're safe, um, but I will tell you, because of the way he shot this movie, it's going to look fantastic at home. Um, I am a theater advocate. I th- recommend seeing this in theaters first before seeing it at home. See it on IMAX. The entire film is shot on IMAX. Now, one I know that ratio, all that means is the top and the bottom of the screen are very tiny, very skinny bars. So the majority of your television screen is going to be filled with the IMAX image, and it looks absolutely glorious like this is a beautiful beautiful film and shout out to john murphy did the score for this movie he did the score for um danny boyle's sunshine he's a really great composer um and i just genuinely think it all came together really well uh is it you know it's a four out of five it's very solid very good i enjoyed the heck out of it it's a lot of fun for sure jakey where are you at i would also give it a four out of five Um, there you go 
I, I think for the reason you guys nailed, I think the characters are all brilliant, and I, I think it's smart to start plucking a few of them out and giving them their own series because I think they can all sort of justify kind of going off and doing their own thing. Um, the first act of this film, I was in. Like, yeah. there was a moment where I thought, like, this could be like a four and a half, five out of five for me. Like, I, the first act was just, I was like, oh, God, yes. Like, I'm, I'm sold. And then once the characters had been established and the novelty of who they were kind of wore off yeah. and the actual story itself took front and center... I agree with you guys. I sort of went like, oh, well, the story's not as good as they are. Like the, the mission. Sure. Like if you if you said, here's $1,000 and a sheet of paper and a pen, write out exactly what their mission was. I'd sort of be like, I couldn't tell there you. There was this guy <laughs> in this country. <laughs> I could tell to go, you. And they had to go. They had to get there by a bit, you know. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, they, I, I kind of wish uh, as much effort was paid to what they were doing as opposed to who they were, who they were. Um, exactly. So, but, but beyond that, you know, I, 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 Thought it was I, I really I really really dug this movie I'm super into it um, yeah. but uh, I I uh, kind of wished it, it that the ba- the back two acts were maybe as strong as the first but but still yeah, so very much very 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 highly recommend and very important as I mentioned uh, the theatrical experience for this is great because of the IMAX um, but it, you know if you have a really good system at home and you have a good television um, a- again theater first. Uh, but this will look spectacular. It's it, it, I actually think it's really cool that the way he shot it, because it will look great at home. It just just give your give it the theater theater exclusivity first. Though, I'm going to sure. I'm going to have P, PJ put it on his phone and stand in another no. room. I'm going to watch it over his shoulder. Yeah, uh, I will on, say that. Do not PJ's watch phone. any movie ever on your phone. I'm sorry. No movie <laughs> deserves to be watched on a phone or an airplane um, for the first time. Let's transition right to James Gunn Blend. This week's Blend Blend game is dedicated to the director of Suicide Squad, but also the writer of some interesting stuff. And so, um, Jakey, let's start with you. Where did you go for? Uh, did you go with Suicide Squad for James? I Gunn? did not. Uh, I went with the first Guardians of the Galaxy, which mm, nice. um, I don't know if anyone else is and wants to jump in on my conversation. My, I, I did as see, well. Okay. It's I, your I, I just I, I think it's so. the um, and I and I think you know you guys would probably agree it's the perfect blend of. Big Marvel action film, but then also like this core humanity, like that moment uh, near the end of the film where, you know, Quill is, is you know, it, things aren't looking good for them. And he's trying to like remember like what he's fighting for. And he flashes back to his mom mm. in that hospital bed like that. I think is one of the most profound human mo- for for because keep in mind like how like quote unquote for lack of a better word weird this was this movie was within the MCU at that time. Now by this point we've gotten Ragnarok and we've gotten nuts and things and now we're talking multiverses. But at that time this was kind of the like wait is this gonna work? Who like we don't know who any of these characters are and they're kind of a weird like there's a raccoon in a tree and <laughs> but and 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 the grand scope of of like the uh, how crazy this Marvel movie was at the time it was also the most human and grounded and, and, and probably for me emotional of all the MC, uh, MCU movies up to that point And even beyond, I would say, um, I, I, so I think he found just this perfect balance of weirdness and, and comedy and just spot on perfect casting. Chris Pratt as Quill is genius. Every Bradley Cooper and, and Zoe Saldana, all of them. And, and, uh, uh, uh David Batista, everyone's mm-hmm. fantastic. Vin Diesel exists. Um, so it's just you know I, I genuinely love 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 uh, Guardians and it's top it's top five Marvel for me. Kev, so uh, and I, I could I could be wrong on this so please jump in and say Kevin you're wrong. Um, 
But in terms of Guardians of the Galaxy in the MCU, it may have been the first time I felt a director's voice in the MCU. Is that, could I be? Am I wrong on that? Like, was the uh, am I missing one? Like, and I'm not saying Favreau's voice wasn't an Iron Man, but like, I mean, I, I think you could make an argument. Like, to me, Avengers is very Whedon. Sure, I, that, that's the only one that I would say. Okay. Up to that point, is that Avengers was was very like just like the quips and the little like yeah. the pop okay. culture references and all that. But you're right in terms of somebody taking Marvel characters and putting them into their type mm. of movie. Mm. Yes. I think Guardians is one of is Guardians is without a doubt a James Gunn movie that takes place in the in the MCU. 100%. Whereas there are plenty of other examples post it that are just like that's an Ant-Man movie that happens to be directed by Peyton Reed. Right. Yes. And I, and I, it's no interesting so I, I agree with you on the Joss Whedon thing for sure. So Joss Whedon Avengers aside, it was the first time that I truly felt that a director's voice was coming through the MCU film. And, I, and mm-hmm. this is a very random reference, but I always go back to this. I always go back. This is not the MCU, but I always go back to Guy Ritchie doing Aladdin. I did not even know that was a Guy Ritchie film based on what I watched. I mean, I knew that he directed it going in, but I wanted Guy But didn't Guy you want to see a Guy Ritchie Aladdin? Yes. Like, doesn't that sound point. awesome? Yes. Like, I, I wanted Guy Ritchie's voice to come through Aladdin. So Wait, before we get shouted at, I want to throw out one other director. Kenneth Branagh's Thor is kind of a kind of yeah go just because it's so shakespearean and he has such a yeah he might not have a very directorial voice sure you know i don't think i can really pick out like oh that's a kenneth Branagh movie but i think he was a good pick for that material well Well, yeah because i well i associate him with like big shakespearean productions which that first thor very much is but you're also Mm -hmm. talking to the person who thinks thor one is the best thor out of all three i do i love thor one i I, I love thor one brana's thor is awesome movie um, and <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I love that. Right, so I, I do. Love I, I, I am glad you guys stepped in with those because I, I didn't want to like say it and then have someone online be like, "Dude, you're an idiot." A, a Whedon's movie was, but Dude, in, in all, this is it, the internet, it, man. I know, but in all honesty, like it was, it was refreshing to see a, a, a filmmaker's voice come through a big budget film like that. And I, yes, mm-hmm. I do agree with you on Whedon um, because there was so many like jokes that were definitely him. Um, but in terms of Guardians, it was the first MCU film for me that. It had the best soundtrack I'd, I'd heard in the MCU, yes. no question. Uh, it changed songs for me like Tarantino changed songs for me. You know, when I watched Tarantino's film growing up, those songs are now associated with Tarantino. So if I hear Stuck in the Middle with you or uh, an Al Green's uh, whatever song that was in Pulp Fiction specifically, if I hear those songs, I immediately think of Pulp Fiction or whatever mm-hmm. movie I'm thinking of or Reservoir Dogs. Same with James Gunn and Guardians. He made those songs characters of their own but he also made them memorable to a point where i will always think of guardians when i hear those songs moving forward in my life um and for a filmmaker to be able to achieve that in a massive mcu film but also i didn't know anything about the guardians of the galaxy mm. um, going into the movie i I've, t- I've said this in the show before i'm a comic book movie fan i did not read comics growing up i collected some of them but i didn't really get into them as much so my comic book realm is coming from the perspective of somebody who's watching them via movies so the guardians was kind of a a concept that i wasn't too familiar with i mean it's, it's Dude, very- nobody really knew about them though to be honest with you sure. they were really lo- small scale right but the concept it, it's funny guardians and suicide squad are basically dirty dozen right i mean it's it, it, it's that same concept it's it, it's that similar vibe a group of characters who are put together just that you know kind of have their own things going on um pratt obviously the moment he steps on screen movie star mm. Movie mm. star like James yes. Gunn made him a movie star. Um, this the film. It's interesting. I rewatched it the other day and Jake brings up an interesting point about later in the film when they go back to the mom. 
I want to talk about the beginning of the film, how dark oh, the beginning oh is. The, the beginning is so dark. Like, like I was watching it with Lauren the other day. I couldn't believe that that's how the film actually opened. I hadn't seen it in a long time. Mm-hmm. And to think about like people going to a Marvel film and to, to be set in that darkness right at the beginning, his mother dying and him going out and then being sucked into the spaceship. It's a pretty traumatizing sequence if you think about it. And it really sets the bar for who the character is moving forward in the film. Because while we meet Pratt in a comedic way, you, you know there's baggage and emotion there that is then explored in the way his character goes through his arc and the rest of the film. I also want to shout out Gunn for Rooker. Rooker, Michael Rooker oh. is such an amazing actor. And my first experience with Rooker was Mallrats because I, when I grew up, like that was my first experience with, with Rooker. So I always loved him in Mallrats. But then when I saw what he did with, I know he's worked with James before, but is it Yandu's his character's name, right? In, mm-hmm. in Guardians. Mm-hmm. That character, when he got his arc in two, I don't love Guardians 2, but Yandu, it's Yandu's Same. movie. And that that yeah. arc was incredible. Yeah. Um, so for me, it's Guardians is just, it's so great. It's it, it hits on every level. I I will never forget seeing it for the first time. I did the junket. I was out in LA and I was just so surprised by it. I mean, like at that point you walked into a Marvel film, you kind of knew what you were getting, not in a bad way. I love the MCU, but Guardians rock that boat for me it, 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 it there, there's it, a semen joke within the first 15 minutes <laughs> right. of the movie and, yeah and it, it really and honestly i'm a sucker for this type of um this type of character i love a character in a, in a world where we don't as the audience know what the character's saying but we know what they're saying through the other characters reactions i know it's been mm-hmm. done before but the group character is so brilliant to me it really was because it was it was something that I found fascinating. It actually immersed me more in the movie. I kind of tried to lean in and figure out exactly what he meant, but you just based it on Pratt or Saldana's reaction. Um, it's just a, it's, it's an incredibly executed film. It, it is, it yeah. is just so well done on every level, score, soundtrack, action, emotional depth. It just works. So I'm, that's hands down my favorite gun film, but I do love Slither. I do. I, I think, I, I think he's done some great work. Super. Um, so I'm, I'm all in. I, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a gun fan. So not a lot I can add. Um, you guys have kind of covered all the bases. Um, you did, huh? one of the things I want to add is that I, I don't, I wish the Marvel movies weren't, you know, um, like I wish this wasn't the out of the, out of the box one. Yeah. You know, I wish more of them were weird and, and, and they are, you know, some are Dr. Strange got, got kind of weird and strange uh, you know. is amazing, man. Yeah, I love Derrickson's strange. Uh, but I want to see more. I want to see. Yeah. Like Taika. I want to see more people like Taika taking big swings. I want to see more people like you guys are right. When, when James Gunn delivered the first guardians, like it was a big swing in another direction. It's a game changer. Uh, it was a someone risky described, film. Someone described the teams um, in such a way that's so perfect that I'll never forget it. They said, if the Avengers um, are the Beatles, then the Guardians are the Rolling Stones. And I thought, like, oh, oh that's just such a great way to describe. That's interesting. Um, yeah. How just like dirty and, you know, uncultured and, you know, but like kind of sleazy, but kind of sexy. Like the Guardian stories are just that. I, I watched both of them back to back to kind of figure out which one I was. I, Guardians 2 is really good. It falls apart at the end. I, I know Kev doesn't like it as much. It, the, the first one is just so great. It's yeah, really yeah, emotional. Yeah, the one at the beginning of the fir- of the of the second one is awesome. Um, it's really good. I, also, I want to give a shout out to James Gunn uh, for what Sean Gunn does in the Guardians films. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'll tell you right now, the, going back to Guardians for one second. I know Jake has to go because uh, we have an, his an interview coming up, but I want to mention that like 
Bradley Cooper's performance as Rocket is incredible. Like it's a great, and I know Sean Gunn plays the physicality of Rocket, but that voice he does for Rocket is brilliant. Like that, I can't believe. I can't believe it's him. I still can't believe it's him. him. It doesn't sound anything uh, like him. So it's funny you say that. I can't believe it's him. I went through a phase for a long time, and this is just a, a product of how great he is in this film, where I didn't believe that that was actually Heath Ledger as the Joker. I, 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 I thought to myself, they're pulling, a, they're pulling a joke on us. There's no way that's him. How, and same thing with Bradley Cooper's voice. There's no way that's him. But no, I'm, I've, seen, I've seen Sound Booth's uh, video of Bradley Cooper delivering the voice, I and I can't believe it. that's coming out of his mouth. <laughs> it doesn't I, sound I, like anything that should anyone, be coming out of his I, mouth. I, I don't know anyone that's ever been able, because I know like, the thing that you never really want to do is straight up ask someone to do like, a voice, voice in, oh, in an interview, you know? Uh, do you know of anyone who's ever gotten him to do? Because, because as far as I know, he doesn't really do the junkets for those movies, right? Like, it doesn't. No, do you no, do no. you know of anyone that's ever gotten him to do the voice in an interview? No, never. I don't think he's ever. I mean, it, it, again, to Sean's point, I still don't really know if I believe it's him. <laughs> we gotta go. We gotta. Go. We gotta run out of time. All right, audience picks. Um, Lee went with Guardians of the Galaxy and says because James Gunn made me care about a raccoon. And a talking tree, and he made me decide to study acting in college, which I oh, think wow. is great. Awesome. Uh, Mike Ray is from Cinema Blend, the great I Mike I know Reyes. him. I like him. Went with Slither, but contemplated uh, Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead because James Gunn wrote it. Uh, and then oh. Sebus went with Super, um, but he said Super was my favorite recently, but I saw The Suicide Squad yesterday, and I loved it, and so... That's my new favorite one. I Beautiful. think it's his masterpiece. I forgot so. Gun wrote Dawn of the Dead. Gun wrote Dawn of the Dead. Well, because remember totally when cause we Gabe, put, Gabe put a stipulation in there that it didn't just have to be um, his directorial, directorial work. Correct. It could have been his writing work as well. All right. Uh, next week, uh, hashtag Ryan Reynolds blend. Get your picks for Ryan Reynolds films in uh, via social media, hashtag Ryan Reynolds blend, or via email at realblend.com. That is where you can also send us a review. And this week's review is a very, very sweet one. From Donovan, who is a friend of ours from Iowa. And we met Donovan out yes, at the Quentin Tarantino Show in Los Angeles. He big, made big us fan. fantastic posters. Uh, and he writes, longtime listener and a first-time reviewer, I have autism spectrum disorder, specifically what used to be known as Asperger's. Growing up, I was very shy, quiet, and socially awkward. I didn't make friends easily or really enjoy being around other people much in general, my primary companions were movies. I visited my local movie rental store twice a week and consumed VHS tapes voraciously. I was obsessed. I didn't play with toys so much as I directed them. I would write up scripts involving my G.I. Joes, storyboard the whole thing, and then act out the scenes with my action figure cast. I was undiagnosed and not fully in control of my emotions during this time. I was a bit of a tyrant on my sets, and more than a few G.I. Joes got ripped apart at their rubber band connected torsos because they didn't perform a take proficiently. Fast forward to the present. I'm now in high school. I'm now a high school art and film teacher. And I'm still equally obsessed with movies. Naturally, as podcasts have become more and more ubiquitous in recent years, Donovan, you're challenging me with these words. I have sought out ones about film and filmmaking. I've tried several, often bouncing around between episodes, including topics or guests I find most interesting. And it wasn't until I discovered Real Blend around episode number 30 that I found a podcast with the perfect blend, no pun intended, Ah. of all that I had been looking for, from in-depth interviews to meaningful reviews, debates and discussions, to friendly and familiar banter. I have been hooked listening to all 252 episodes ever since. Oh, he's a premium 
uh, subscriber as well, too. When the pandemic hit and theaters closed, I leaned heavy on the show to get me through. I usually go to a late night premiere screening at my local theater every Thursday once my wife and kids go to bed. When that was no longer an option, I counted on the guys to fill the cinematic void in my heart. Admittedly, I've been a passive observer, never venturing out to any of the meetups or participating in any of the blend games. As they begin to tease, as they began to tease a hashtag, if it happens, in the lead up <laughs> to their most recent Tarantino event, I began to suspect what they were hinting at. I got up the nerve to direct message Sean to see if it was indeed true. It's true. He dropped me a DM in my Twitter uh, account, which anyone can. That's how I got there, too. Not only was he nice enough to confirm my suspicions, he also helped me secure a ticket to the event. I ended up flying halfway across the country to see my favorite director and podcast hosts and have one of the greatest times of my life in the process. I owe all of that to Sean, Jake, Kevin and Gabe. They have continued to be incredibly gracious ever since putting up with my newly found pestering social media this is not there is not a group in film journalism as nice kind savvy and handsome as these four i'll let you decide who is who i assign episodes of the show to my students all the time and i recommend it to anyone looking to fill a cinematic shaped hole in their heart donovan terrific review thank you very much for that sir very very sweet his poster that yes. he made is Beautiful. in my live in my in my kitchen, and I see it every day, and it like blows my mind to see our names on a poster yeah. with Quentin Tarantino. It's a li- <laughs> and, and, and we're not just saying that like like oh a, a fan created something cool for us, so we're giving them a shout out. It is a genuinely awesome poster, like brilliantly designed. It's awesome, and I can't wait to get it framed with a with I, our photo of all of us. So can you take a picture of him, put it on your social? You I'll put, put it up, up on your yeah, social for sure. Okay, I, I, so I people on, hear this. Yeah, yeah, I put it on my Instagram when we first did it, but I'll, I'll do it. I'll post it again when this episode comes out. I'll okay. post it on my on, on my Instagram. So if anybody listening to this, you can go to Jake's Takes or Kevin McCarthy TV or Sean O'Connell. Um, what is your Twitter name? I don't even remember Sean's Twitter name. Is it Sean just, it's underscore O'Connell. O'Connell. Yeah, it's right. Yeah, underscore. Sean I underscore the underscore. O'Connell. It's so right. funny I'm because the... like you're in my phone so much, I just hit at S, and you're the first person that comes up when I tweet when I at <laughs> you. you. So remember, I'm the one who's not verified. That's I, true. Uh, good point, oh, good and point. the show got turned down for verification <laughs> as no! well too. We, no! we applied for real blend. It didn't get verified. I think because they saw my name attached to it. And they <laughs> were like, bitches. Go screw that guy. Okay, uh, our next premium episode is going to be the 2005 Oscars in Review. Uh, again, you can get access to the premium episodes at Real Blend. No, cinemablend.com backslash Real Blend Premium. Uh, we'll be back next week with some exciting new get. Oh, who do we have next week? I'm trying to think. Oh, I know. We have a cool one. I can't. I don't, I don't want to tease it. it I know who it yet, is. Yeah, you know what it is. You're we did it excited. already. No, we haven't. Oh, next week. What the hell is going on? I thought next week's we guest was Don't Breathe 2. Fede Alvarez. Wait, it? it could be Fede Alvarez, but I think it's also whoever we're doing tomorrow. Oh, oh, that's a good point. So maybe we'll, all right, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll work this out behind the scenes, but we have, we have a plethora oh, of guests that we're working on. It's, yeah. It's great when we organize this stuff during the show. During the so. show. Yeah, yeah, he's going to love this part. We'll talk to you guys next week. I'm a stud. Stop. Hear Stop. me. No.